34 of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, as always, Zach is here. And with us, you know, this week we have uh, Clint. How you doing, Clint? Doing fantastic, my man. Awesome. Glad to hear it. And then our guest this week is, you know, one of the names in Colubrids and Colubroids. So you know, we've, we needed to have this guy on for quite some time, and I'm beyond thrilled to have him this evening. And that is the one and only Jason Hood. So uh, we will be talking Shocker, Spilodes, uh, but we're going to be focusing this episode primarily on Spilodes, Pilatus, but before uh, the Tiger Rat's name. But before we jump into that, we kind of have our typical housekeeping. Um, just to let the listeners know, Clint and I have decided to record a bunch of episodes in rapid fire to kind of build a bank so we can keep our two you know, episode every other week schedule. So it's only been, I don't know. I think it's been a week since, uh, we recorded the last episode, which was, uh, with Chelsea. But, um, in that week's time, not much has happened with me. I had a, um, clutch of Hernando County, Florida Kings drop. So both of the females I tried to get young out of, I, I, well, don't have the young yet, but have the eggs. So, um, that's pretty cool. And with that clutch, I somehow managed to 100% of the projects that I tried for this summer or season came to fruition. And that's kind of interesting because I really wasn't banking on that. And every time you bank on that not happening, that's when it happens. So um, we have that for me. And then uh, this time next week, I'm praying to whatever deity you pray to that I and 22 other people from uh, from West Liberty are standing in Costa Rica. Um, I've been battling with airplane ticket BS. Um, it's a great day when you start your Monday and find out that 15 of the 23 people's tickets were canceled. Oh, so I've shit. been, yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been low stress environment. Everything's been good, but, about 30 minutes before we recorded, I finally heard that we have we have tickets again. So that's good. Um, it's Wednesday, for those who care. So it's been two and a half days of absolute hell. But other than that, we're doing good stuff tonight. And I am more than ready to nerd out with some snake talk tonight. So uh, that's really all I have. Um, Clint, what's up with you? So I'd like to say that it's been a laid back week. Um, but no, <laughs> far, <laughs> far from it. So I think in the last episode, I mentioned uh, that we were making a rather large acquisition. Yes. Um, and we did. Uh, <laughs> I saw and, and, <laughs> man, uh, yeah, upside <laughs> down, right? Uh, for some reason, I don't know why. Every video that I post to Facebook and Instagram at the same time, it posts it upside down on Instagram. Oh, there you go. No clue. But uh, so in short, what we did was, um, and I need to give a shout out to a few guys here because I had um, Bailey Frankenberger from Bailey's uh, Big Boa brand and uh, Joe Uris from Riverside Exotics. The two of them met me here at the shop where we then loaded up and proceeded to drive nine hours one way uh, mm -hmm. while another friend... Uh, Rich of Madhouse Serpents and Supplies Pet Store in Ohio uh, left his house in Ohio to also drive nine hours, hauling a 24-foot trailer. Uh, we met up and stayed the night, got up. I, I'm blown away because 
I thought we were looking at a good five hours of load time, and these guys knocked it out like two. Um, nice. It, it was yeah, that part was amazing. Um, got everything loaded. It took every inch of that twenty-four foot trailer to load all of these racks in. Um, we had all the animals with us nine hours back. Then the next day, the complete unload, and that's what my entire time has been spent on is uh, cataloging. Uh, you know, all of, first off, because we're power washing all these racks, getting everything as sanitized as possible before moving into our quarantine area. Um, got it all in, got it all situated, everything wired up, and making sure temps are, are going where they need to go. Um, everything gets put on treated paper, of course, just in case. Uh, however, I'll say after going through one by one, 170 animals, I saw zero signs of any mites or any issues or anything. So that was a, definitely a, a big, big plus there. Um, but uh, one by one, getting you know ID numbers, getting an inventory, getting every animal put away. Um, but I'm telling you, it's been a ton of work. We're not done yet because I still have tubs to scrub and more things like that. However, these animals I'm so stoked about. Yes. Um, I, I, I mean, it's, now while we were unloading, I'm sitting here thinking I made a mistake because <laughs> it was <laughs> so much work. Um, however, it's super exciting because I, I'm getting to work with some animals I've never worked with before. And it's not like that they are just super uncommon or anything, but um, like uh, Mexican line pines. I've oh, cool. Worked with them before. I've got a trio um, there's a spotted python in there. Never worked with them. That's neat. I've never worked with rosy boas, and I've got like 25, 30 of them now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. Nice. Uh, we talked last week about the gray bands, and I think there are 50 in here. Um, Holy crap. Yeah, all different kinds of localities. There's uh, morphs, and there's like seven of them that are gravid right now. And then I, the rest, I was like, you know what? I'm not feeding until another few days. Let's pair them up and see what happens. Every one of them locked up within two minutes of putting them together. So, like, right now that's really cool. But when I'm (laughs) dealing with hundreds of baby baby bands, it may not be so cool. (laughs) We'll see if I still like it at that point. Um, But, yeah, Subox, you know, I already worked with those. Um, I know I'm going to get a chuckle out of this because I've never said this word. I've read it a million times. I know what it is when someone says it or I see it. But uh, is it Nablakai? Am I saying that right? Nablakai. Nablakai. There we go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, never worked with those either. And I've got uh, you know adult hypos, uh, adult normals, and uh, they're gravid. Uh, Arabian sand boas. Never worked Whoa. with those. They're here. Yeah. And finally, this is one I- I've had – one or two over the years, but I've never had adults and I've never bred them. I uh, just, you know, kind of had them in and, and sent them out. But a, a trio of Baird's rats, and man, oh, these cool. things are stunning. Absolutely mm-hmm. stunning. Uh, the male's a hypo, the females are head hypo, but I mean, you're talking full on metallic at this point. Yeah. You know, they are very, very cool. They're good. But uh, that has been definitely my entire week. There's not been a. There's not been a day off in quite some time. <laughs> I don't see one anytime soon. So, that's hopefully you get them all squared away. I I totally forgot to talk about this, and this is relevant to you, uh, believe it or not. Um, so over the weekend, 
Well, I guess we left on Thursday and then we came home on Sunday. But um, obviously, my other world is crayfish. And the state of Kentucky uh, is trying to figure out a way to get their burrowing crayfish, which is what creates all the mud mounds that people have in their yards and they have them in ditches and lots of snakes and and other herps utilize those burrows they create for habitat and and things of that nature. So there is a tie with the burrowing crayfish and, and herps. But anywho, they were trying to figure out a way to get the state's burrowing crayfish fauna surveyed and at the same time not necessarily have to give out a giant grant. And so they came up with this idea to do a burrowing crayfish blitz of which there's like five people on the planet that can partake in. Uh, so anyway, so I, I loaded up one of the university vans and we headed out to um, Rough River Dam State Park in Kentucky. And then I told uh, everybody that I was more than willing to go where people didn't want to go, which is where the basically swamps were in Western Kentucky. And so I just basically was given a bunch of coordinates the way that field biologists you know, roll and the, the organizer said, all right, go here, go here, go here, go here. And I was like, all right, we'll go and we'll do this. And I'm driving around. I'm using Google Maps. I'm not being a good biologist. I'm not looking at Gazetteer. And um, I ended up in Henderson, Kentucky. Dude, you're right here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right across the river. But I didn't realize that until I got back to the cabin. <laughs> like, oh, Zach, you were literally, like, I literally live 15 minutes from Henderson. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was like, God damn it. And then the next day we weren't anywhere near. I mean, I saw like Evansville signs, mm-hmm. but I wasn't putting it together. I just thought Evansville is the biggest city around here. So obviously that's why I'm seeing the sign. But uh, <sighs> yeah, but while we were doing that, uh, we we're, we're, we're basically going to roadside ditches and, you know, we're look like crazy heathens down there digging holes and everything. And everybody's stopping, asking what we're doing. Uh, and, and it's all well and good. But one of my students jumps down in a ditch. And I know cotton mouths are in um, western Kentucky. Uh, I, I knew that they were in, ex- like, land between the lakes, extreme western Kentucky. And they weren't necessarily where we were. But when you're... You know, twenty-year-old undergrad yells "snake, snake, snake" and grabs a big, fat, killed <laughs> snake out of an aquatic ditch. You kind of like have a mini-stroke, heart attack, and shit your pants all at once. And um, it took me about half a second to realize, okay, that's definitely you know, yes, you are correct. It is not a cottonmouth. And then I started looking at the damn thing, and I realized that what they had cat, what they had caught was a copper belly water snake, mm-hmm. which is um. Nerodia urethrogaster neglecta, if you use the, the old Latin. The, the current, the, you know, everybody gave a crap about the revision with the rat snakes. Nobody cares about the name changes <laughs> that happened with the red belly water snake. But they basically made them all one thing. And there used to be like, oh, there's one, two, three, f- at least four, possibly five. I'm on the spot. I can't think. But that was the only one that I'd never found. So I got soup, like, immediately put the crawdads aside and was losing it that we had you know that's the snake we caught and the northern population is actually federally protected so um there's that and then i went to clean it off because it was covered in mud and you know i'm standing at the edge of the of another ditch and there was an even bigger one just hunting i assume frogs so i let it get real close to me and i nabbed that so i got to add a lifer to my 
perp list right across the river from you, and I didn't even realize I was that freaking close. So, gosh, man, that breaks my heart, Zach. Breaks my heart, buddy. I know. I, I thought I might not tell Clint I was this close. <laughs> I'm gonna take it personal. Yeah, I know. But no, we got back. I was looking in the the map book, doing what I should have been doing in the van, and then I was like, "Oh, oh, damn." Okay, huh? So, anywho, that's how that worked. Yikes! But yeah. Anyway, all right. So I think, um, without further ado, uh, we can just jump in. Um, you cool with that? Let's do it. All right, cool. So our guest tonight, like I said before, is um, Jason Hood. Uh, Jason Hood has been you know, in herpetoculture now for quite some time. Uh, many people know Jason for a handful of different snakes. His uh, blackhead pythons, we'll give those credit at least for, for now, then we'll hop, hop back to colubrids, are well known in the Aspidites, um community. I know my former graduate student, I get to say that because he graduated, which is cool, uh, Lucas, talked to Jason quite a bit when he was working on his thesis with um, that genus. And then uh, what in Colubrid land everybody knows Jason for uh, is uh, the genus Spilodes and then the Neotropical Bird Snakes. And I'll let Jason say that genus here in a minute because I can never say it right. But basically Spilodes pilatus and Spilodes sulfurius. Um, Jason's talked before about sulfurius, so we thought it'd be cool if we would actually focus on the tiger rat snake uh, tonight. So how you doing, Jason? Everything okay? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on here. I appreciate it. Nah, the pleasure's all ours. So I, I know you've you've gone over this before, but I think it's well worth giving it another go. So you can give the long version, a bridge version, whichever version you want to give. But just tell a little bit about your history in, in herps. Um, I grew up in Florida, so we had the – in South Florida <clears> – <throat> Prior to the explosion of exotics, we just had curly tails, but always catching animals. Then I moved up to Massachusetts where they're, well, they're, if you know where to look, you can find them. I didn't know where really to look other than in one of the ponds with a bunch of water snakes. But uh, it, it uh, I kind of lost a little bit of interest at that time, but then walked into a pet store and bought a corn snake. And that just kind of was the beginning of the end for me. Uh, I ended up moving back down here to Florida. I uh, was cleaning pools and stopped at my boss's house to drop off the trailer and found... It, you couldn't tell me it wasn't an okatee. It was such a beautiful corn snake. And added that in with the... With the original was an albino and then met Kathy Love and that just really ruined everything. She's, she's just... Yeah. Like the sweetest, nicest woman on the planet. And then I got some of her Hypo Everglades rat snakes. And she got out of them and just gave everybody my name, which was just amazing. For a young guy, you know, I had a couple pairs of corns and a, a trio of Everglades and some king snakes. And all of a sudden I have, you know, a major player in the reptile world giving out my name and recommending me to people. That was, that was just amazing. And especially, I think it was. 22 years old at the time and that, that 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 was huge and then she she outdid herself when i moved up to chicago by putting a good word into me at the chs recommending me heavily there got me involved with them and that was like florida has 
it's a different reptile culture than Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there, there are herb societies down here, but they're not as academically minded as Chicago. So moving up there, like down here, I was literally told by one of the, my pseudo mentors to not learn Latin names. <laughs> I moved up there, and that, it, that's everybody's like, okay, you're kind of a moron, but we'll we'll, we'll let you. Know. <laughs> and, and not, that's how it is for me on this show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I'm competitive, man. I'm competitive in everything. I played basketball as a kid, obviously, because I'm tall as can be. And when I couldn't do that anymore, I started Taekwondo. When I couldn't do that, it was when the reptiles blew up. It's just there's that competitive collector thing. Mm -hmm. So it kind of – it was one of those things going up there where it was – to have people out doing me on something so simple as just language was kind of – a drive and then my wife's from Peru I went down there and if you meet anybody on an international level all they talk is Latin names because there's way too many common names you can't have a conversation with somebody from another country without knowing your Latin names and that's where I really felt stupid you know you can judge people all you want from where they come from but these I had a guy that was he was lives in the jungle still knew all the Latin names and there I was <laughs> Mr. Chicago, my wife's telling everybody I'm the, I think at that time I was the vice president of the Herb Society and she's getting us all these zoo connections because that was somehow a big deal. And I didn't know my Latin for anything. And it was, that was kind of crushing, but that, that kind of made me want to learn at least my species. And that's something I think I have to recommend to everybody, especially on a fairly academic minded podcast like this, learn your Latin. And I I love that you guys always include it. It's because it's not just, it, it does affect how people look at you and it does affect your understanding of things as well. Mm-hmm. So it's something huge to learn. Cool. Sorry. That was a sideways rant. <laughs> we like the rants, dude. Do it, do it more. But, Keep going. <laughs> but So anyways, I, I, I moved back here to Florida and ironically, so Zach, we, we met at uh, a stick marsh, right? Yes. Way back in the day. Yeah. Now I live like a mile and a half from there. That's creepy. And I have I have not been down. The, I've been down the road a couple times because there's an amazing birdie, birding opportunity there. Like right mm-hmm. at sunset, every wading bird from 30 miles around comes into one of the islands right there, and it's just amazing. So I brought my mother-in-law oh, cool. there, but for actually herping, the traffic's gone through the roof. They opened up two more places uh, you can launch port boats from, but it, so it kind of ruined the road. But I, I just simply have not driven it, but I think one time – in the eight years I've been back, which is just kind of mm-hmm. speaks to how much I work. Yes. <laughs> I just work for damn much. <laughs> Heck yeah. So, you know, you kind of talked about your start there, and obviously it sounds like it started with corn snakes, and you had that move with, um, you know, Kathy Love and her giving that shout out, which that's, that's awesome. I mean, that, that had to feel freaking wonderful. Uh, is that why you've kind of stuck with Colubrids? Is that what moved you in that direction? And, no, I. So when I was down here, um, mm-hmm. I was doing the the jobber thing that I think is people pay way too much respect to in this hobby. Like that, that's one of the things that drives me nuts is how many people that just flip animals have way too much respect in this hobby. But I would go down to all the wholesalers and buy stuff and sell to all the pet stores. But I actually backed up everything. Anything died, I, I refunded I refunded or replaced the animal. 
I tried to get all my stuff as clean as I could before I ever offered it to the public. I had my whole thing. Um, and during that time, I had guys offering me to jump in on the, you know, this new thing, the ball python thing. That was like 2001, 2002. And uh, I just, I never, I never had any interest. I was always a colubrid guy. I, I love the boas. The boas coming in from Guyana fresh. Those were always amazing to me. The venomous were a huge draw because I was a young idiot, 20-year-old kid <laughs> with testosterone. So absolutely. But thankfully, I was, I was also smart enough to realize how stupid I was with my fish tanks <laughs> and, and stuff around my house and things getting out. And I'm thinking, you're going to put venomous in your house when you can't keep a corn snake locked up? Like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Now, I mean, I, I could probably pull it off now with proper caging, but I'm also at home – way too lax so i just i have no yeah. desire for the venomous at this stage but i anyways I, I guys back then that were offering to get on the ball python you let, let's go buy 600 or a thousand of them and we're gonna get a, a six thousand lot i'm like no no interest i've just always been a colubrid guy and i the ball pythons for i mean if i was smart i would be doing ball pythons because that's where money is but i just <laughs> aforementioned idiot i'm not, not i'm not interested i want to do what i like and what I found, you know, somebody told me one time, if, if you're passionate about something, you can sell anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it wasn't even reptile related. It was just, he was just saying, Hey, if you're passionate about what you're doing, you believe yep. in your products, you can sell anything. And I think, um, that's really, I mean, with reptiles, it's so much easier than anything else you're trying to sell because if you're honestly passionate about it, there is something you find super cool about the individual animal that's easy to sell. You can point out like on a Baird's rat, it's ugly from across the street, but you get up on it and there's a myriad of colors and rainbow and oh my God, the most beautiful animal on the planet. You yep. can't sell them at a, at a, a show as babies because they're just gray unless you slap a, an adult on the table and you'll sell out in seconds. But you got to, it's that education, the passion, the drive to, to get, interact with people. And that's... A, that's where I get more interested and I find more stuff to do with the colubrid side of that personally. I agree agree with you there. I think that, I mean, not to go too far down this particular rabbit hole, but when you're talking about like markets, you know, you said ball pythons, that's, that's where that money was. Right. And, and, and can be. And it's from what I see in these two separate markets, ball pythons and colubrids and colubrids of course is going to encompass a lot but there, there is big money at times in ball pythons, but it's a very fickle market. It, it's a, mm-hmm. I, I would say it's, it's the stock market of the reptile world where yeah. you're gambling on your buy, you know, and it's, if you hit this, it's going to be big or, you know, it could take off. But it also, every time the economy gets a little shaky, the ball python market yep. just, you know, boom. And it's, you get collections up for sale and it's, you know, but in the reason I say it's like the stock markets, because if you are someone who does this as a business, that's the time to buy them. You know, you know that's because everybody's going to be moving things very low. But what I see in the colubrid side is it's much more steady. When there's a drop in price at all in colubrids, it's 50 bucks, you know, a hundred bucks yep. kind of thing. And it holds And a lot of times, uh, bamboos, baby rat snakes. I mean, you, you've, you've seen them for the same price or higher, you know, that they've gone higher for the last 15 years. 
they, they, they not mm-hmm. moved. It, it stays there. So I think there's a, a lot more of a steady piece from the financial side. But to your point, Jason, I mean, it, it's all about working with what you like. If you're going to have any kind yeah. of long-term success in this hobby whatsoever, you can't chase the dollars. You have to change, chase what you're happy about. And like you, you, know, you pointed out, putting a baby bear's rat on the table, it's going to sit there. What I love is a lot of these types of colubrids, baby Chinese king rats, same thing. They're, they're ugly as hell. But you get the people that walk up to the table and know what they're looking at. And yeah. that's what they've been looking for, that ugly snake, because they know what it becomes. And to me, that's just so much more exciting than walking by and, I mean, let's face it, ball pythons look their best like two weeks after they shed for that first time. You know what I mean? It just goes downhill from there. They get uglier the bigger they get. And so as babies, they always look real pretty on the show tables. But I just love that whenever you get those people who walk up and they know what that animal is without you even describing it yet. That's exciting to me. It's just a, it's a different niche. It's a completely different atmosphere. Yeah, no, it's a different world for sure, but it's the it's the world we're in today, unfortunately. And I, I I say unfortunately, but without ball pythons, there would be yeah. nowhere near what we have in the hobby today for money for anything else because they it, we really they are the the cocaine of Miami for us here. Without them, that we don't have everything else. <laughs> no, you're a hundred percent right. The incubators are out there. All the products that have yeah. been developed. I mean, there's. So much money that was dumped into this industry because of ball pythons um, that, yeah, there's it opens the door for a lot of the other things that we, we enjoy. You know, even the, the importing of the ball pythons that you know was taking place so heavily, there were other animals coming in with those imports. You yeah, know, the, that Snyder, the Snyder skinks that are that you, you, you I used to buy them for a buck a piece at those wholesale shops, and now they're they're way up there in price because they, they mm-hmm. quit bringing them in. Yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah. We, we have a, a lot to be thankful for when it comes to that side of the hobby, as much as yeah. we may complain about pieces of it as well. I, my heartbreak, I think, is the same as everybody else. My complaint is the same as it, it's the the handful of guys that you meet in the hobby that you're like, man, you got a great like. Uh, my buddy Tom Fur up in Chicago has had this amazing Honduran collection, mm-hmm. and I, every time I'd see him, there would just be another ball python and less Hondurans, and it just came out he had he had no Hondurans. And he had some other cool colubers, and it just things like that kind of break mark. Because I, I, he's a nice guy, I like talking to him, but I like talking about snakes. And he'll still yeah. talk to you about other snakes, but it, it's his driving focus became the ball python because that's what, again, that's where his money is. And I got no yeah. problem with that, but it kind of like it, it was almost like a, a little breakup or something, you know, like right. he got a girlfriend, <laughs> and now we're not as close. To, as close to <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things like that. Well, you know what I mean. Like, you, there's a bunch. I'm sure if you're if you're not in the ball python world, you, you kind of lose some friends to it once in a while. Oh yeah, it happens. And then yeah. I mean, it, it's when you. It, it is hard to have those conversations because it's you can talk about a ball python, but if you're not in that world, you can't talk about all the morphs. Yeah, you I know, know. I, I, you know, I can't. Right, and I, that's that's really uh, what the ball python conversation is. It, it, yeah. It's all those morphs, and it's and get this is coming from a guy who I've had to get back in it, obviously with with the shop yeah. here, and um, I mean I'm learning a little more as I go as far as oh what this morph does, that morph, uh, oh yeah, well that and that would make this. I'm like oh shit, I didn't even know that existed last time I was doing this. Um, but yeah, it's it's different, it's different. Uh, you know, you're talking about care, you're talking about um, 
breeding tips and things like that when it comes to a lot of the, I don't want to say obscure, but just less commonly bred uh, colubrids. You know, those are the conversations we're having when we're talking about them, both ball pythons. It's just, yeah, I'm doing this morph to this morph this season. I'm chasing this morph, you know, for yeah. two years down the road. And that, that's where we lost the, as a hobby is we lost a lot of people that were keeping other things, those obscure animals that that's what made early 2000 Daytona expos amazing. As you walk in there and you saw a species you never even heard of before. And of course the other, that's the other thing that people get on my nerves about is they go, Oh, this show sucked. And it, well, one, I was there. So no, there was different things besides ball pythons. And two, <laughs> If you want to see something besides those ball pythons, you have to buy something else besides those animals. <laughs> right, right. Yep. I, I, I've, I've been to literally 100 shows where people tell you you got the best table in the place. I'm like, I made $1,100 this weekend. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Cost me nine to be here. I could have I done one real job call and made more money, but... Thank you for that yeah. pat on the back. Is that a handful of ball pythons you have? Great to see. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm glad you appreciate the table, though. So, but whatever. But anyways, let's leave the ball pythons alone. This yeah, we, we've, we've had our ball bashing for uh, for this episode. Not, not <laughs> non-bashing. We didn't, we didn't bash. Our, our ball python conversation. Yeah. Uh, there you go. There you go. The other... Four conversations we've had in previous episodes down <laughs> the same path. Um, well, getting away from our, our good friend, the ball python, and heading into back to Colubrid land, uh, I want to talk a little bit, well, obviously more than a little bit, but let's just kind of dive in on tiger rat snakes, if you don't mind. So uh, I have limited, I mean, we, we have them at the university, Um we got a surprise clutch, and we've raised a couple. Uh, I, I I was coached by the, when we got the clutch. I reached out to Jason immediately and was like, "Tell me what to do," and did it, and you know we're good. Most of those young actually ended up getting something and passing, but we have one that survived and it's still doing great at the university. But Jason has obviously had way more than one. So if you don't mind. I'd like to just hear if, if you were introducing somebody to Spilotes, not necessarily, you know, I want to keep them, but rather some, you know, someone with a naturalist that's asking the question, what the hell is this tiger rat snake? You know, just kind of give your spiel. You would give somebody who'd be asking you that question. Well, they're, they're, they're kind of like a forest edge specialist species, it seems. And they, depending on what range they're in too. Like, so in Mexico, at least I think they kind of, run the niche of the coach whip in the, in Florida where they're, cause that's the, the Tamalimpas locality that the Gladys Porter zoo, amazing, vibrant tricolor stock that everybody takes pictures of at the zoos that are all dead. Now those, those were all captured while they were doing a sea turtle study and turned around and saw them in the mangroves. That's crazy. And then they said, Hey, the, to the locals, Hey, these right here, get us more. And they came, they ended up with like, I think 3.3 or something that they brought back as the founder stock. So they, that, that they, they were doing a zoo, a zoo sea turtle study of some sort. I didn't, I didn't care too much about what they were doing. I was just more interested in what, what they found and where they found them. 
But um, further south, they get to be more uh, like edge specialists. And then the Amazon, they don't they, they don't get the edge as an option. They're they're kind of all over the the, the Amazon. But um, they're just such a, a as captive-born animals, they they do the puffing. All of them, the Phyronax, the, the 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 Sulfurus, they all do the puffing. They'll all do the cage strikes. The the they're not bluffs. They they'll smack you, but um, and you will bleed from them if you let them bite you. But if you get them out of the cage, as captive-born, they're almost universally placid. They don't. They'll still puff for you in hand, so you get these great in-hand photos. But I don't get bit by them. If they're in the cage, like I, I'll, I take some bites. Or if it's feeding day, absolutely. But they're, to me, they're, they, 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 they live in that great world where you, you get all of the what you get attracted to in the pictures, the, the big giant puffs and the bluffing and the, the tongue out and all. That always, that, that's not like hognose that just goes away. These guys are always like, no, let we're on, we're on. Um, <laughs> one thing like um, <laughs> another tangent, right? Let's bash another group of things. Um, <laughs> we're not bashing, we're conversing. Remember, we're, we're conversing. We're conversing. Yeah. <laughs> racks, racks in these things, in my opinion, oh. should not coincide. Uh, one, they're just that. they're too damn beautiful. They're too active, and most importantly, they are visually oriented hunters. They, if you walk in the room, they're watching your every move, whether it's out of interest, out of hunger, out of fear, whatever it is on that particular day. And it, 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 it can go all three of those in a couple seconds, it seems, but they're always watching what you're doing. They're always interested in you. you I can't see taking an animal that seems to have that much intelligence and stuffing it in a rack. It, yep. They're similar to like, have you ever been in, the, in a, like, I, I assume you went to, uh, George Van Horn Serpentarium down here when you were yeah. down this way. Oh, yeah. If, and you go to see that giant, what I think at that time it was like a 13, 14 foot King Cobra. Yep. And that thing would come across the cage just staring at you. The tigers do the same thing. They have that intense look you in the eye. Who are you and what are you doing in my area vibe <laughs> about them? And that to me is just such an amazing thing with them that I can't see ever not keeping them. But. There, you you have to have them to to experience that to really get that vibe from them. But I I just love them. I love everything about them. Um, they seem to be sexually dimorphic, where the the males seem to have stronger keels. But mm-hmm. after seeing a bunch of them, not a hundred percent. I mean, it's a secondary sex sexual characteristic. So people like to try to sex them online and be like, oh, you got a male, you got a female. It's like you probe it. Yeah, you should definitely be relying on the probe. Mm-hmm. Fire and axe, you can visually sex adults easily. Fire and axe will nearly cut you with their keels. They're so extreme in the males. And the mm-hmm. females, while they have keeled scales like a, a, a yellow rat snake type keels, they're, they basically feel smooth like a, like oh, a rat cool. snake or a corn snake does. But the males, I think like when the testosterone hits them or something, they get aggressive ridges i mean it is if you see a pictures of adults and you look you kind of zoom in on their backs you can easily easily see a male from a female from that so that i mean that's i'm bouncing all over the the whole group of them but there, there's so many cool little details about them like that that i'm constantly just 
enamored with them and, and trying to pick up other things from them. Yeah. We we have um, the animals at, at university were in a very large walk-in enclosure. Uh, it was basically trying to remember my dimensions. Close to nine or ten feet long, about seven or eight feet tall, and then at least four and a half feet wide. So it was is a big enclosure. Damn, that's amazing. And, yeah, and uh, it was really fun because we at, at the school we have to we have to add all these kind of I don't know what the hell the word is uh, levels of care. And, and all the animals have a number, and it's basically like beginner, novice, intermediate, expert kind of deal. And we had the Spilotes were like novice to intermediate, but we had to make them a solid intermediate. And then ultimately, they were almost going to be pushed to expert because um, they would learn who the who the grad students were because the grad students do care every day. It's the same person every day. Um, but the undergrads, because we have so many of them, there'd be a different set of undergrads in there literally every day during the school year. And our male in particular was really good at making undergrads comfortable. And then he'd show up, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd be like out on a branch and he's a big snake. He's eight feet. I mean, he's not. Uh, maybe more now because this was, geez, two years ago. But he'd be out on a branch and the kids are, you know, we already have some that are snake hesitant. And so they walk into this walk-in enclosure and then he'd start initially with like the slow, very deliberate tongue flick. And then his head would like lift up off the branch and that throat swell would happen. Um, and then for certain people, and it was weird because it was repetitive. And that's what I thought was really interesting about it. There were definitely people that he just was like, uh-uh, get the hell out of here. And he'd like get into a striking coil, and then that one person would leave, and he'd like tongue flick, be all defensive, and then go right back to being a snake. And it was always when like the main keeper was in the room. And the I only other it. snakes that I've had <laughs> that did anything like that were the falsies. Um, and with false water cobras, they're, I, I tell everybody, when they're adults, it's not until they become adult. When they're little, they bite everything. Uh, when they're, um, but when they get to be, you know, half four or five foot, and then up, you know, other than just being complete idiots in the presence of food, they're never really aggressive. We haven't had one that would even hood at people. But the, uh, but they're intimidating because they're so big. But the spilotes aren't as girthy. But by the end of like that year when the male got real comfortable with that walk-in enclosure, he had a reputation, which was cool. And it was really neat because the students, there was almost like this weird um, rite of passage among the students. Like, well, the Spilotes <laughs> likes me. He doesn't rush me out of there, you know, like bragging right kind of thing. But yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about with that presence. Yeah, um, no, that, that's awesome, man. I, I need a walk-in cage now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh-huh. Yeah, it used to be the slot. We had a slot at the university, and we shared it with the school, with, with the school's zoo, the zoo that we work with, which was like ten minutes down the road. And um, I would, we, you know, I would bring the sloth home at night, and it would like run around my living room in the sloth jungle gym that my wife loved so much, uh, right in front of the TV. And then I would like 
take it you know, the next morning to the zoo. Uh, and basically, long story short, it wasn't great for the sloth doing things that way. And for its welfare, we said, you know, we'll give you to the zoo. But we had built this enclosure that was based around a neotropical rainforest. And I was like, I know exactly what's going in that cage. And it isn't another mammal. And so we got, you know, the Spilodes were purchased and they went in immediately. And and then, you know, the rest is history. So, okay. That's awesome. Yeah, no, they, they were a ton of fun. Um, so uh, we, if you don't mind, can you talk just a little bit? And I don't know if this applies to them or not, but I know it, it applies to someone. This genus Suitsi. That if you get yeah if you get older books then older isn't really that old, um, like yeah, mid that, 90s, um, late nineties you can see that name and then you see the name Spilodes and if you're like a, a, a snake nerd you've probably had the moment I had where I'm trying to figure out like what the who is who is this name good what what is Suitsi is it Spilodes like all that crap yeah so Suitsi's um, God I can't think of the guy's name who who sunk it um, ultimately. Uh, the, the the idiot in Australia sunk it because he wanted to keep uh-huh. it, but but uh, the taxonomist, uh, I guess the rules were no, you we're, we're all following these same rules. You can't keep it, even though it's a better name than Priornax. Casusi uh, mm-hmm. translates into bluffer and liar, which perfectly describes oh. well, sort not perfectly because they don't they don't always bluff, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it you know it, it helps describe the puffing thing, and I don't even know what Priornax tra- translates into. I can't think of the guy's name, though. But the gentleman who who did sink him was a uh, um, geneticist. Oh, gotcha. So I walked. He, he he is a herper, but he was more genetics than herper. I walked in with a baby pistol and notice and showed it to him when he was at the CHS. I'm like, hey, you know what this is? And he's like, ah, oh, is that a liar snake? Is that? <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, it used to be a really cool snake called a Susie. He's like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But um, uh, it got sunk because sulfurus was found to be more closely related to Pilatus. So um, one thing I noted, uh, Pilatus, I don't know if you noticed with yours when they were mating, were um, that's one of the things that the, the Primo Reptilia made an article about was when they, they mated, they, the, they would do the, the typical snake courtship male on top chasing each other around a bit, but whenever they finally decided to relax and get get down to business, the snakes kind of go their own way, and the tails stay interlocked, yeah. and you'll have one on one side of the cage and one on the other side facing away from each other, and their tails crisscross opposite directions, and the only thing you'll notice is a massive bulge in the female, because mm-hmm. all of these seem to be very proud snakes. Yes. Um, <laughs> And I noted that in Sulfurus. So I was all excited, and uh, the gentleman was, uh, like I say, was a member of the CHS and on the board for a year. And I came in, I'm like, hey, man, you, you know, you're, what you did, what you guys did looks like behaviorally it matches up, man. The, the Sulfurus breed the same way the Pilatus do. Yeah, we don't look at behavior for taxonomy. Oh, I'm like, right, man. right. But the behavior matches, and it's, <laughs> you know, that, that's a, it's a fairly unique breeding method. That's, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? And he's like, yeah, we don't look at that. Like, oh, come on, dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you that this taxonomist looks at that. 
Uh, That was the coolest thing to me. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it got sunk because Sulfurus, for a number of different reasons, looks like they physically also match up better with with Pilatus than than, uh, Pisilinotus. Um, And actually, something else that... um, that uh, he he was pointing out to me that you need to work on Zach, okay. your your little minions. Mm-hmm. The he was saying that the species at the species level, there's a ton of work to be done right there. Oh yeah, he he had no interest in doing it, and like where the Mexicanus range down into like northern Nicaragua, he, he said that he, they could see that when they were doing the work, but they weren't going anywhere to that species level. They say it's genus, and they were getting out of there but it, it was pretty interesting he pointed out that for pilatus you mentioned you want to talk about range um pilatus ranges all over mexico uh, the southern portion of mexico into central america down to like north or sorry mexicanus rather screwing this mm-hmm. up from the get-go <laughs> <laughs> mexicanus all over mexico for obvious reasons down into northern costa rica that he said that they were seeing, uh, I'm sorry, northern Nicaragua. He was saying in, in Costa Rica, each side of the mountain, they were looking like there was a, some speciation going on there. Something oh, else cool. down in the Panama region on the, this always screws me, even Foas, the west side of the Andes, something else going on there. And then the, the basin looked kind of uniform, like what we see with most everything else. And then the Atlantic Slope, I asked him about because there's some really, if you uh, do the Instagram herping and just go mm-hmm. by different regions and, and the different ways you input your, your search, you find the local common names for them and do those searches. You can find the uh, Sao, Sao Paulo area Atlantic Slope yeah. tigers. Mm-hmm. Their, their pattern looks like a northern pine pattern. Oh, cool! They're, they're spectacular, big, squarey blotches, and that's also where the sulfurous have the red heads and mm-hmm. are tricolor, in which is weird because the you know the tricolor mexicanus is the complete opposite end of the range, and then the tricolor sulfurous is all the way at the the southern end of the range. So it's just a, a, a neat, it's a neat way to look at them all, um, but I would love to see someone actually do some real work on it because then there's like the striped tigers I have. Those were formerly uh, Argus formis, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's a few other uh, South American suggested species names that are down there that some people follow. Some people say they see different things, but I, I don't see it personally. And I'm by far not a taxonomist. Um, but the Argus formis is in Honduras. And seems to just be a genetic stripe. Huh. So that seems to be something that should be pretty easily sunk as um, John uh, Anderman was looking at specimens in the zoo out or in the museum out in San Diego. And he did a bunch of scale counts and he said the scale counts are the same for the um, or within the same range for all the Mexican huh. animals into Honduras and all the Honduras animals, no matter what the pattern type was. So there's no scale count difference. It's just a pattern mutation, which seems to be simple recessive. So that there's like an easy sink there and a couple jump ups. But I please, please pressure, use that <laughs> pressure, <laughs> pressure to throw somebody in there. 
I gotcha. Well, the the thing is, if you look at the range map for these animals, it's very hard to accept that one species of snake that gets only one taxa that goes from Mexico all the way down through all of Central America and then through pretty much all of Northern South America and then like the eastern side of Amazonia, the Chaco, all that stuff down into like, I think it's it looked like Uruguay when I was looking at it. Like that's just such an insanely large distribution. Um, there ha- And there are plenty of zoogeographic breaks and there's plenty of areas where things can isolate or be isolated. Uh, oh, so yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. Um, you know, all I need to do is get a $50,000 grant and it can be done. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm on it, man. I'll kick you down 50 yeah. bucks out of... Yeah. This is why Kickstarter exists. Yeah. So... <laughs> Anyway, I need, I need some rich friends that really like the species, I guess. Yeah. So we'll get you funded. I'm actually really, 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 really hoping that we may get to see a Spilodes when we're in Costa Rica next week. Uh, we're going to Corcovado National Park, and um, where we start our hike, uh, two of my former students went down. They got a Spilodes there. A uh, professor I know went to the exact same spot. They got a Spilodes there, and so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but you also know what it's like to try to find these things in a freaking jungle. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> it, well, know, there's a lot yeah. of vines, <laughs> so and every one of them is a snake the first time you see it. Uh, I think uh, one of Bartlett's write-ups on them, maybe in the that corn snake and other rat snakes book, I think it was, mm-hmm. either that or one of the Reptile Magazine articles, he's talking about just laying around the camp and a pair of tiger rats that were in mating mode came just barreling through the camp, bouncing through the tree branches and the rafters of the, the lean to and right back out of the camp. And it was just like a, it was just a, it was such a cool way he described the whole interaction that they were there and gone in a couple minutes and just barreled straight through 20 feet overhead the whole time. Yeah, exactly. So, with that being said, let's let's jump into some um, some husbandry, if you don't mind. I was going to so say, you know, yeah, can we we talked about enclosures, and for those of us that don't have a huge walk-in enclosure, like yeah. uh, like Zach, tell, tell me what we do. How do we set these guys up? Um, I got the uh, somebody was selling uh, a rack of eight-foot neodeshes, and I snatched those up in a heartbeat. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to put my blackheads in this. My blackheads need eight feet of space. And I looked at the tiger rats. I'm like. Okay, the tiger rats need eight feet of space. Absolutely. <laughs> and I got them set up in those. Uh, I wish I had something. Not that I wish to be a strong word. I can go build something outside that's bigger. Um, I got a massive building when I moved, so I, I have that option. And that's where I'm working towards. Um, outside of that, uh, I've got a um, weird five-and-a-half-foot-long neodesh I use as well. And then a six foot um, vision cage. Uh, when they're smaller, I like the little twenty four inch cubes. Cool to raise them up. Um, what I I just I think I posted a picture. They have a fire and axe that I just brought out for the first time, and that's one thing I'm seeing with these as I'm trying to raise some of them up. The animals I plan to hold back myself, I get them out of the drawers as soon as possible because while I'm not a fan of racks. They serve a purpose, and it's yeah. I produce a bunch of animals at one time a year. 
they got to go somewhere. Um, the animal, and I, I strongly recommend if you're buying any of these, especially these strong visually oriented animals, you got to get them out where they're seeing people and seeing interaction. If you ever want to uh, have them in, a, in an enclosure that you can appreciate them in, because the the animals that stay in the racks longer tend to hide more. They tend to display less. Um, I, I think there's uh, whatever. I'm not going to get into the what I don't like about racks, but I, I think that the, getting them out of the racks as quick as possible, if you plan on having them, I think is a huge thing. So just even the the 18 inch cubes from all the different manufacturers, Zoomed and Exoterra, and them, bunch of branches in there for the babies to get them set up. And ironically, uh, some of the people I've sold stuff to have had a far easier time getting their animals going because I'm again I'm housing a bunch of them I go from none to 30 or 50 within a couple weeks and I ship them out to people that have one or two they set them up in in terraria style and they do wonderful for them I have one guy like dude I don't care if they're feet or not just sending me I'll get them going I'm like all right as long as you understand here's all the things and I, I got a couple of videos up to show you how to tease feed to sell a notice um, if, if we're kind of on the subject of Pilatus, Pilatus are, do, does this, this doesn't apply. Pilatus are just beasts; they eat like crazy. <laughs> they, that's the re, one of the reasons I think they're the most popular of the three species is because they're they're like the best suited for captivity. But the um, Pacillanotus and Sulfurus seem to need that planted enclosure to do mm -hmm. well, and if you're able to supply that, it seems to pay off such in such huge form they're calmer animals overall they're they eat better they just do better so i strongly recommend that for the babies but as they get to be adults um the other thing that people kind of bust me on once in a while is i i recycle all my cardboard right into my snake cages every cereal box pizza box not takeout pizza but yeah. frozen pizza everything that's a clean cardboard box goes into an enclosure gets crapped on then gets recycled um, cause a lot of the stuff I keep, they, and Zach, you know, these things yeah. poop quicker than almost anything. Yeah. And it's not turds. It's yeah. like a paste. It's, <laughs> it's, it's bird poop. They're yeah. like mm -hmm. reptiles and birds are related. They're, they're right there and they're, they're more bird. They're more mm -hmm. bird lizard. And that, that's something that, um, Ron St. Pierre, when he was, he, Ron gets on these kicks where he keeps snakes for a little bit and then remembers he's not a snake guy. <laughs> and he, one of the things he loved when he had the, his Pilatus set up is that he said, dude, these things are just lizards without legs, man. These things are so interactive. They even crap like lizards. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm telling you, they're, they're such cool animals. They, they're, they're super interactive with their keeper. They, like you said, they learn their keepers for better or for worse. Um, so definitely I recommend large enclosures. If you, the largest you can do, they're not going to be upset. Obviously, like what you said, you got walk-in size mm -hmm. so that that silly thing people say that the cage is too big for the snake and it scares them mm -hmm. never made sense to me ever and it definitely doesn't make sense with these guys they'll use every inch of whatever you give them lots of branches and lots of branches you can pull out and hose off yes they they will and it, one thing that i kind of started doing almost on purpose is leaving the, having a water bowl near a climb up branch point because they seem to climb up the branches, drop and with their tail being the last thing that goes up, they drop in the water bowl, take a dump, 
and then move on on move on with life. And I come in there, dump the water bowl, clean it out, sanitize it, throw it right back in there, and that's one less cage I got to clean. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It, it's you know kind of universal. You touch the water, you got to go to the bathroom, kind of thing. So, uh, you know, we, we talked about the branches. Um, when you say like plants, is is fi- are fake plants fine, or do you have to get like a pothos army, or doesn't really matter? It's just more the like adding I, um, the heterogeneity cover to the cage kind of thing. Yeah, give them give them nice spots to hide. I I cut down. I got a whole bunch of oak trees on the property, so I just chop an oak branch and throw it in there. I'm also gotcha. not the type that thinks you need to sanitize everything. Mm-hmm. The they'll do okay. It's, it's, it's that's one of the it cracks you up. That one of the the modern uh, trends is all the um, naturalistic vivarium with the the cleanup crews. But the, those people are like, I'm going to put all these bugs in here, but I need to clean these branches to have not have any bugs yeah. on them. <laughs> now, I, I I'm definitely of your your elk there, uh, Jason. I. I I, I I understand that you do run the risk. I mean, you have to acknowledge you could bring something in. Uh, but but I, I don't know if I was talking about this last week. I think I was with Chelsea. We recorded with her. But I bought a thing of springtails once at a show. The little white guys. Just because I was playing around with a naturalistic cage here in my office at home. And I threw those springtails in. And I think every one of them died like by the end of the week. And then I went out. You know, being the naturalist nerd that I am, and I got down to the layer where it's like dirt but wet leaves, and I grabbed a bunch of that crap, chucked that into the viv, and I still have springtails in there from four years ago when I did that. Like, and, but, and, and so, if I would have sterilized those leaves, <laughs> all that shit would be dead. Like, and it brought in fungi, which helped with the poo, with the geckos, and everything else. So, that's anyway. one thing I. So strongly recommend for if you have again like that's one thing. Um, new keepers with racks is a pet peeve of mine. Whether you agree with racks or not, new keepers need to have enclosures that can see their animals so they can learn their yes. animals. That sh- that should not be something that's even argued. And mm-hmm. why would you want to have one snake in a, in a one high drawer? That that, that oh that gets me. <laughs> but um. Anyway, assuming you have animals in a cage where you can see them, grabbing a handful of leaf litter, non-toxic plants, obviously. I, I use live oak out here. And throwing that leaf litter in the cage, not even for the for what you're saying, just for the enrichment value of it, yep. your animals will go tongue flick every edge of every leaf you throw in there. And it's just, that's one of those things, like, I, I can set up a, I mean, I do, I'm not, naturalistic at all i got aspen for easy cleaning some branches i cut down stuck in there some cardboard and then i throw some leaves in there once in a while and sit back and it's everything that everybody talks about being the benefit of the the naturalistic enclosure you get from that leaf throw you throw it in there and they're out there they're active they're tongue flicking they're checking everything out and they're thinking no matter what species it is they're thinking and they're on some level and that, that we need to provide that for these animals Oh yeah, I, I one of my favorite things to do is um, what you just said. I, I go out and I get uh, a handful of the of the of the duff or the leaf litter, and I chuck it in. And I also will um, I'll take um, 
water and I'll wash the leaves down sometimes, get the decant the water off of the bucket. So I just have the water and just kind of I, I, I don't know how to explain this over a, a podcast, but like do a real quick spill in the shape of a J and just add all that chemical enrichment to the tank. I, you, know, I, you have to do that when you keep things like dry mark or indigos and crebos and falsies and these big intelligent snakes, because when they get bored, they start to get zoomies and they do these like never ending loops around the cage or they just sit like those are the two things I see. They're either in the hide box all day and they're not doing anything or they never stop freaking moving. And yeah. then you end up with an obese snake but these things have to eat all the time and you're got to, you, you have this like oh shit i've got to reach this equilibrium state and get them moving again to, to get them burn the calories but they need to eat and you know, all that if they're moving around in an inquisitive way the way they do when you see a snake on the crawl out in the woods um they're, they're burning calories they're certain they're never going to burn the calories of a snake in the jungle i'm not saying that but they're at least up and moving and engaged and doing stuff and and that's what we should strive for like you said so i agree 100 on that one yeah, well, I'm gonna say, Jason. One of the things you said that I liked, and because I, I don't think I've ever really heard someone use those particular words, but when you said, you know, you've got them moving around, they're flicking their tongue. You said you have them thinking, and I, I love that that particular word is what you use because too often when enrichment is talked about, it's it's given the connotation of like fluff. You know mm-hmm. what I mean, and Sometimes it is in the kind of the way it's used, I guess, you know, in a lot of conversations about reptiles and enrichment, but stating it the way that you just did, it's not just about the movement. It's, it's, you're getting that reptile thinking. And I, and I yeah. liked that. that. That's a really good point. If you have an animal escape its enclosure and you don't fix that escape route, they're going right back to it. They're mm-hmm. learning. They're, they are, the fact that we, don't have a scale to to judge their intelligence does not mean they're by default not intelligent creatures. They're yeah. incredibly intelligent animals, especially if you give them the opportunity to show it to you. But we, the fact that they can't run a, a labyrinth for us like a rat doesn't mean that mean they're not intelligent. Um, and people like, oh, you're, you're um, I'm, I'm drawing the blank on the giving them human values. Anthropomorphism. Word. Thank you. You're anthropomorphizing mm-hmm. them. Um, obviously I'm not that smart, but the, um, <laughs> the, uh, th- that's not it at all. They, they, they are by default an intelligent creature. They wouldn't survive in the wild. They, like they can't just be big, dumb eating machines. Like people try to represent them as they have to have the wariness, the awareness of predators and prey and what they can and can't do. And I we we show a little bit of a lack of respect in the hobby to some of these yeah. animals, it, and I mean even to the ball python. Feel oh they're a big dumb rock. Eh, the way they're set up in captivity, sure, but in the wild they're climbing trees, eating birds, but only when the birds are coming in on the migration route. Like they're 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 actively doing things that are outside the scope of what we give them credit for. So, but with with tiger rats, there's no question they're intelligent. I mean that. That visually, any of the visually oriented animals, the garter snake the same way. They're visually mm-hmm. oriented. They they interact with you, and I think people say, "Oh, these are smarter." But, uh, they just express it in a different way where we can appreciate their intelligence. Yep. So, 
Yeah, that was a that was a wonderful little tangent. I like that. It was. I, that was a fun <laughs> one. I like that. It's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. So when it when it comes to heating them, um, I'm assuming that you use lights or a heat panel or something of that nature if you've got them in enclosures. Yeah, I'm and, using lights. I, I'm a old school. I like heat lights. Oh, um, I am too. One eight hundred bulbs is a great little web page to go on to get bulbs cheap. Um, you can because it's getting hard to find incandescent yes, bulbs, so you got to buy them in from China. They're not all great. Some are burned out right away. A bunch of the damn things pop off their bases and damn near electrocute you. So if you get the cheap bulbs <laughs> from China, let me strongly recommend you unplug before you change the bulbs. Um, but we're running. I mean, I'm just not paying reptile bulb pricing for a heat bulb yeah um so but yeah if i'm gonna recommend that let me fully recommend unplugging the, the thing um i i just go you're you're getting to the question what what do you heat them to um uh mm-hmm. 40 to 60 watts I, I have no idea what the temperature is um <laughs> again if you're watching your animals the animals that are sitting underneath the heat constantly are too cold the ones that are never in the heat are too hot. And if they go in and out the heat, you did it right. Yep. If they're using their enclosure, you did it right. I mean, that's, um, I frustrate people. They're like, well, what, what humidity do you do? Where they shed? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't have a, a hydrometer. Would it be? I don't even know what yep. to call them. I, I'm uh, with you a hundred percent there. I mean, everything from, you know, subox to, uh, Brazilian rainbow boas, I, I don't think I've ever measured humidity. It's always been, are they doing their shed cycles the way they need to be? How does the substrate look? Um, I'm with you 100% on that one. Well, and I'm, I, I get why people want care sheets. I wanted care sheets as well, but I also wanted books. I wanted to read stuff, and I wanted to find out about the natural animal where they naturally occur. And people will say, hey, well, do you have a, a care sheet for any of these the puffing snake complex. And I said, well, they, you know, they're an edge, edge forest specialist, they're nest raiders, they're day active to crepuscular. And they live, you know, mostly in the central and South America. So it's kind of subtropical. And they're like, okay, well, wh- what are the setups? I just told you. <laughs> but even that, like when you tell people they're from South America or Central America from the rainforest or rainforest edge, Okay, so it need to be like 90, 90, 100 degrees in the hot spot? Mm, no. They need cooler than that. The, 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 the rainforest is not really hot. Where they cut down the rainforest, that's hot. But the rainforest itself is high humidity and yep. mid-80s. It's not – you're not getting those super high temperatures. You can give it to them as long as you give them the other part of it. Let them move. So it's I'm not a I'm not a care sheet guy. I'm a observe your animal and make adjustments guy. Because the other the giant issue with the care sheet and the, and I'm always willing to help everybody. Like on blackheads, I've I've helped numerous guys get their snakes to hatch. That's the big thing of blackheads getting the eggs to hatch. But I can tell you what I do, and I can look at what you're doing and where where you're having issues. But I can't tell you how to do what you need to do at your house. Your house is not my house. You don't have the same humidity the same baseline temperature of your room elevation. There's all sorts of things that come into play. So I, I don't, that's why I don't like about care sheets because you follow care sheets to, a, to, to the letter, 
you're failing your animal because your house is mm-hmm. not the same as the guy who wrote the care sheet. Right, right. So, yeah. I don't know. It, I think that's. Uh, I think we're all on that same '90s, early 2000 come up, and that's what we did because <laughs> that was yeah. kind of. Yeah. In in the modern the modern people, and it, I I almost said modern kids, but it's not modern kids. It's everybody in the modern era coming in now wants it too simplified to where they're missing the intangents that they need to need to learn. So that that nuance is the, that's a better word. (laughs) That's the way that, that that's, I I desperately try to get that through to the students when I'm teaching them um, is that it's not just one, like it's not a hot spot, like a hot spot of 85. What that really means is you can have a hot spot of 90 if there's enough, room in the enclosure for that heat to dissipate and at the far end of it it's 70 so what that really means is you've got a gradient of 70 to 90 and the snake's going to be able to find the temperature at once there but when you one of the things i've noticed is that people read those things so freaking literal that they're sitting there with their hygrometer and they're like having a freaking anxiety attack if it says 80 degree or 80 percent humidity and it's 82 like the, the, no, I mean, <laughs> the other thing is, I um, so. if you can follow a care sheet to the letter, and I'm not going to say you're wrong if you're successful. Yeah. And I mean, the, the one of the best examples is, um, God, I just I had his name before I started talking, and I just forgot it. Don't don't have car accidents, kids. It's causes yeah. brain damage. Um, Black Black Hills Serpentarium, Terry, Terry, oh, Terry Phil, yeah. Mm-hmm. Terry Phillips runs everything, I believe, at like 81.7 degrees or something incredibly exacting across the board, I think year round, and still breeds everything. Yep. So I, I might not be exact on that. He, I don't know exactly. But I remember just reading some things that he was writing, and I'm pretty sure it's like 81, 82 degrees or whatever his number is. I do not believe he varies from that, but he has production. He has long-lived animals. He has animals that digest properly. If it works, wonderful. Yeah. Again, I can tell you what I do. I can tell you how I have success, and I, I'm happy to share what I'm doing, but I'm never going to tell anybody what they're doing is right or wrong. That's that's also, I think, a, a very bad way to think about things. Yep. So what do you do, keeping this <laughs> topic alive, when it comes to feeding? What's your frequency – What's your prey item of choice? Oh, <laughs> uh, the great feeding thing. So, yeah, yeah, we're going I, down I, that that hole. With, with these, I don't think it's as big of a a, a scary topic as the blackheads. I got mm-hmm. some hate in the blackhead world from uh, people that don't think you should feed your animals. Um, you're, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. We we went from morbidly obese animals in the '90s and early 2000s to anorexic animals modern day and then people like i used to be successful then i wasn't successful then i was and now i'm not and i think it's because you swept too far the other direction it's it's almost like our politics we're going too left too right can we just have a medium here um with with these they digest like crazy i'm you know like dry myricon they suck food down some of the fastest swallowing snakes you're ever going to see yeah it's crazy also some of the fastest processing snakes you're ever going to see. 
And in my mind, if I see a snake eat a food item and have a liquid-based fecal passing a day and a half later, what that tells me is that animal is designed to eat an incredible amount of food and not mm-hmm. have the by the best digestion of that. Conversely, you get like a python or a boa that could, like I'm such a kluber guy, I did not really see boa and python turds for a number of years in, in the hobby and then I finally did it. I was like, holy crap, they're like little dog turds. Yeah. It's the cutest thing ever. <laughs> They're solid. <laughs> that's, that's adorable. Like, how did that happen? Did they all do this? This is crazy. This is so much cleaner. <laughs> but um, with with these guys, I don't think they're they're pulling all the nutrients out like a, like those guys are when they're when they're giving you that nice compact dry turd. That's mm-hmm. that's an animal that pulled everything it could out of it. And with tigers and all the all the fast digesting animals, they're they're pulling stuff out. I. To your, the baseline of your question, I I only have time to feed weekly. I got a buddy of mine's coming over on uh, midweek, so I, I feed Sundays. You try to contact me on Sunday, you're most likely not going to get a hold of me because I have no signal in my building. Um, <laughs> and that's just how it is. And people are like, hey, can you grab some pictures? I'm like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I have to remember to do it and then have, walk outside to send them to you. And if I do it too late, then, well, the, the mosquitoes in Felsmere are large. Yeah. <laughs> they, that sucks but so i'm, I'm on uh, if i don't have him coming to help me feed i'm doing large uh food feedings on sunday if i know he's going to be in there and i plan on doing the feedings i do a little bit smaller on sunday and then again on on wednesday but smaller is very relative like smaller for me is a a small rat and a chick or uh-huh. three chicks versus okay. uh, a small a, a medium a small and a couple chicks if I'm just doing a once a week feeding because they are just they are not inexpensive to feed. <laughs> yeah, I am looking for a I'm looking at doing a wholesale chick purchase just to be able to get chicks in. I started breeding quail just to have another avenue of food for them. Then the wonderful irony of ironies, Catornix uh, quail. Yeah, just let me save a bunch of people a bunch of money. Um, you want everything up to two weeks old and nothing past two weeks because their head size is so tiny and their body structure is so wide besides <laughs> carpet pythons and ironically sulfurous, very few things I have, including nine foot blackheaded pythons can get the darn things down because it's such a dramatic jump. Mm-hmm. They just, they, they, they can't figure it out. Like after like two weeks old, they're they're almost useless to me at that point. Like at two weeks, I well now you're a breeder. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't feed you quick enough. So oh, that's um, the secret then. <laughs> yeah. So if you're trying to order them, I'm I'm yeah. gonna I'm getting up to the point where I'm just gonna be do day olds out of the, what I'm producing in excess. If people want them, the button quails I'm doing in huge part because the pilatus again pilatus are just such not an issue. They'll take any live food item at all, I think, but live rodents are not an issue with them at all, but sulfurous, bacillinotus, some of the Drymarcon, some of the carpet pythons, uh, like pretty much anything that's a difficult feeder sees a button quail and it's game on. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing a crap ton of button quail right now. 
Um, a couple people bought me out uh, the last two times I had production up, but that's that might end up being a, a button quail breeder instead of a reptile breeder the way things are going. <laughs> <laughs> Those funny. things at least produce for me. I oh, know I'm having a terrible year, man. It's uh, ever since I moved, my years have gotten progressively worse. And then people say, "Oh, you produced this and this, so shut up. You did a great year." I'm like, e I produce like less than half of what I tried to produce. That to me is a giant failure. Mm. I want to be at like 80 percent to a hundred percent, you know, success rate, not. Not the 30 well, and 40. I have the secret to that. You just get rid of all these blackheads and sulfurous and phenax <laughs> yeah. and get yourself some Florida Kings, which are in your backyard, and everything will be fine. They're they're not in my backyard. They need to be. I'm, yeah. I'm, I, 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 if I could find some, I'd almost kind of want to, like, reestablish them here. Yeah. I wish we knew what was the problem with them down here, but that's a whole other tangent. Yeah. Um, but um, – So then – is there any difference? Well, well let's kind of jump. We'll stay on this topic, but we'll jump to something else. Um, Jumping in this cup? Yes. <laughs> With me? Uh-huh. <laughs> what What do you do to get them to breed? And then we're, we're going to then segue once you get to that to taking care of the young, and then we'll get uh-huh. them to feeding the babies because that can be getting them going is a problem, but once they're going, they're going. So, so but breeding, how do you go about that? Um, the real, real, real simple answer is you get a really good male. Okay. Um, he gets the job done, right? Start yeah. there. <laughs> well, because I've got um, – I bought out Black Pearl's uh, Gladys Porter Zoo stock, uh, Mexicanus, the Tom Olympus locality stuff, which – I mean, it wasn't a big group, but it was, it was a nice – it's a beautiful group. And they're all that's remaining. And then John Anderman is the only one who was really successful at breeding those outside of Gladys Porter Zoo. And my sus- – my, I suspect Gladys Porter Zoo had a good male for a while and lost it and then stopped, produ- stopped production. So it's not mm. just male, female, get it going. They, um, with Sulfurus and Pilatus more than Pacillanotus. Pacillanotus seem to just be uh, all about production. Um, Sulfurus and Pilatus, it seems like the males have to be bigger than your females. They have to dominate the female, and the female has to accept them. So that's why I say you need a good breeder. But not necessarily even a bigger male, but just a a, a male that's big enough to be confident. Um, I think I screwed up with my striped males by introducing them together to a group of potential females, and they fought each other and the the, the female who was bigger than them because I was feeding her more to get her up the size quicker. Um I think she dominated them. Huh. Interesting. They've been terrible breeders. Yeah. But I can take that female with the, my one 50, 50 Mexican uh, Honduran male and he'll breed her. He doesn't, he's like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm the dude. But (laughs) those two guys, like I've tried, I just, I post something about that too. I just tried, I've tried combating, combating did not work with them, but then, I also, because these Mexicanas are aging out, um, that's the other thing. Pilatus are not a very long-lived species. Looks like mid to late teens is kind of their age max. Um, Everything that Gladys Porter Zoo produced that went to other zoos, I believe, is now dead. I don't think any of the zoos that had them still have them. Um, Gladys Porter Zoo still has some because John Anderman was able to get a group together to breed them. 
but um, he got all the remaining single animals he could find together, got production with Gladys Porter Zoo's animal and um, Black Pearl's animal, and then dispersed animals back to each of them and kept some for himself. Then I got some from that group as well. But um, in theory, the proper what I've what has worked for me so far is a cool down in winter. They're they're all going to be not that they I don't brewmate. I give them a cool down. I lessen the food. I lower the light cycle. Yep. Ramp all that back up, and then when the the weather we get the good storms coming in, but early spring, like not even st- late winter, early mm-hmm. early spring introductions and slam them with food like obnoxious amounts of food and hit them with a bunch of humidity and that seems to trigger them into into going again if the male is so inclined but i i also threw some males together this year with the the mexican animals the, the tom lips animals to mm-hmm. encourage breeding and i do have i that was when you guys gave me the extra 15 minutes to get ready, I, I, that was I'm like, all right, before I say anything, I want to go just cantle these things one more time. <laughs> I've, got some, I've got some off-white, not quite pearly, not quite strong-veined uh, Tom Olympus eggs. i got six of them right now incubating. And that's been my, my white whale for the last few years because, like I said, the animals are aging out. But to get them going, I had my my beast male that breeds everything and my two Tom Olympus males, I threw them all together and observed them for a while. And that 50, 50 male went right at the female and I grabbed them out and put them back up in his other cage. After it was like probably 15 minutes in <laughs> he, they, they, the, the three males kind of danced with each other. He broke off, went right to the female. Like, well, well you boys are busy. I'm going to get busy. <laughs> so I, I snatched them out. Cause I want the pure, the pure Tom Olympus animals. And uh, I didn't see any copulation, but I just left them together, and I ended up getting good eggs out of them. And then I, I had previous years just tried to do a single pairing, uh, two separate single pairings. Mm-hmm. Um, that hadn't worked the last couple of years. So, but my my single male did it with multiple females. So the fifty fifty male, he yep. he's just such a beast. He does it with multiple females, but the the one on one. They just weren't they, – they didn't have the drive to mate. I don't know what it was. And then to make matters worse, um, and my, my vet buddy Steve Barton will tell me this is impossible to happen, but <laughs> I've watched it year after year. The seems like the females swell up. I can count ova inside of them, like physically let them crawl through my hand and count one to seven, and then mm-hmm. nothing. They go through their, their, their pre-shed, go through another shed, give me a extra large poop, and go on with the rest of their year. And it's like, oh, ah, come on. So I, I'm trying to be very clear that I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. I've just gotten lucky a few times. <laughs> but, I mean, if guys are doing it better and have other ways, please let me know. Like, I'm always I'm always interested to hear how anybody's doing anything. That's why, I'm like, I don't want to ever tell anybody. Like, you guys asked me about uh, speaking on some other species, and I said I'm not – I'm not comfortable. I don't want to nerd out that deep on something I'm not that into. I like the guys who are deep nerds on stuff. Those are the guys I want to talk to. Yeah. So Jason can, you know, you talk about having that beast of a male. 
Um, can you kind of give the listeners an idea on size when you're starting to put these together on how big you think the females need to be and you know what what does beast of a male really translate to on you know, snakes oh, this impressive he his isn't so much a size as an attitude <laughs> that, that, that creates size right <laughs> yeah um, and, and they have to have the confidence but the they need to be I, I would say like probably most all species around four years old. Mm-hmm. Seems to be a pretty safe number, and size-wise, uh, over six feet. But it's it's one of those. One thing I've said for years: if you have to ask me if the female's ready, she's not ready. Right, right. Yep. I mean, I, I think if you're a good enough keeper, you know when your female's ready, and you you, you turn to your buddy. Like I, my buddy Scott comes over; he's the one that helps me. I mean, I'm blessed to have him because I trust him 100. percent I can let him go take care of my animals when I'm not here. He's an amazing asset to have, but he he came up with as like kind of learning from me, and then I turned to him. You know, I've known him for over twenty years. I turned to him and I looked. What do you think about this female? He's like, you know, someone once told me if you have to ask, I'm like, yeah, shut up. <laughs> the one That's- terrible thing about him is he uh, he has an amazing memory, much to my chagrin. <laughs> That's well, funny, enough. actually. Uh, <laughs> but it's 100% true. Like, every time someone asks you, hey, what, what do you think about this female? The answer is always like, uh, she's close, but no. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, have you ever asked somebody that you really, truly respect if a female's ready and they said yes? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's it, yep. you know, you're, you're just looking for someone else to be the, the person you can point at and be like, well, you said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Being a teacher, I get well. You said about thirty times a day. It feels like do as I say, not as I do. That's my favorite yeah. phrase. Um, anywho, so then when it's funny because what you described is exactly what I do for false water cobras. Like it's the exact same damn thing because it's not yeah. really a brumation. I'm not dropping them to fifty or whatever. I just turn the heat panels off. The, the I get. I, I go from any kind of heat generating light to an LED and I do that around Thanksgiving and I roll through New Year's. So it's not even a long time, but it's just a period where they're not warm and then I drop the food down. And then they when they come out, I just bump them back up and slam them with food and then yeah, they make well, the thing about falsies is they are I will die on this hill. They are the easiest snake to breed to get the action of breeding. It's getting an ovulation, fertilization, and then eggs. That's where you have to like do a bit of cycling is to achieve that. Um, yeah. Is that kind of how it is with these guys, or is it um, not? I I don't think I have the success level to to tell you what is and is not. Okay, I've gotcha. had I've had a few clutches for sure, mm-hmm. and the the up until this year, every one of those clutches has been followed by the same male. When I say you need a good male, I'm very serious. <laughs> I got uh, one, two, three, four, five other males that have done nothing. Six. Six other males who have done nothing. And one Damn. male that's just – that's what I mean. He is a beast. But um, it, and it, 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 six, seven foot long and, and cycled up properly the year before going into that cool down cycle I think is part of it. They need to be – it, it's like anything else. They need to have enough body fat to know they can go into a cycle. 
I mean, there's too much fat in our diets. What's making little girls hit puberty too early. It, it's, it's universal, all animals. It's a body fat composition percentage that causes maturity. You, you need the, 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 um, the calories available to, to enter that next stage. So, yeah, but you also have to give them the, the calorie boost to stimulate them to, okay, now is the time to do it. I think that's the, the tropical species. They, they all, I think, follow that same formula where they're, okay, now the food cycle, the food's here. Let's, let's spit out some babies and, and make more of ourselves. No, that all makes total sense. Yeah, not, there's no secrets. I wish I had a secret because that would mean I, I figured something out, but I'm just I'm trying the same thing over and over again and doing slight variants. Well, this has been a kind of a common theme because, I mean, the neotropical species are something I, I personally have not worked with. Um, but now being, you know, obviously listening to this podcast and then being on this podcast so often, these are some species that we, we discussed and just neotropical in general, you know, uh, various species. But that seems to be a very common thread there is feed, 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 and they want to breed, breed, breed. You know, that yeah. goes with that cycle. So, um, you know, coming from somebody who's, who's not worked with them, I've, I've now – that is ringing to me because I've heard <laughs> it for every single one of them at this point. That, well, that's, that's the trick. That's one of the things with um, with these is – you, you do need to support a double clutch because they tend to always have them. Yes. Mm-hmm. All, all three of the pupping snake complex do at least. And you need – and most of the, the tropical species of milk snakes will, will double clutch for you. Um, and then something that, again, I took an old-timer pointing out I was being stupid way back in the day when I had a corn snake that I, – I got a trio of corn snakes that are supposed to be males. I was just going to flip at a show. And then I came in one day, and a couple of the males were locked up. And I went, "Oh, that's different." But they were, they were like eighteen-month-old corn snakes that weren't fed heavy. They were probably in the twenty-four to twenty-eight inch range, which would be way too small for a corn snake to breed. Female didn't know that, so she kicked out ten eggs. <laughs> she looked like trash. She looked like she was ready to roll over and died. So. Being a good keeper, I fed the crap out of her. Being a good snake and a young female, she said, okay, you want more, Daddy? Here you go. Here's a bunch more eggs. <laughs> Drop a second clutch. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I, This what is this thing doing? And I was telling a guy about it, and he goes, well, you're the idiot feeding her. I'm like, well, yeah, I don't want her to die. He goes, stop feeding her. Don't feed her for two weeks to a month. Then feed her. But she's so skinny. He's like, you feed her some more. And I had already started feeding her at that point after that second clutch. And I was already freaking out about it. And he said, you start, if you start pounding her with food, she's going to give you a third clutch. I'm like, they don't triple clutch, do they? And she swelled up and had 12 ova in her that entire winter into the following spring. And I just was feeding her. Like, I, I have geriatric animals that I just feed. Uh, I'm not going to just dump them off on people or freeze them or whatever when they're no longer useful. This was a no longer useful to me animal. I still kept feeding it anyway because I'm like, this thing's done for. I can't afford it. At that time, I couldn't afford a vet to get them, get the eggs removed or anything. And that spring, I was out of cage space. I went down and bought a bunch of animals. So I threw her with a snow male 
first two clutches to her brothers were all albinos. Threw it to a snow male, I got 50% albinos. Hmm. So if it was head-to-head, I mean, the odds are possible that you could have got 50% albinos, but uh, head-to-snow pairing should have should have given me the 50%. So my assumption is that the male snow was indeed the father, but she held those over all over winter, which again, I talked to my vet buddy and he's like, yeah, that, that's, not, that's not how it works. They, that the, the over were that big and you could, and they were distending the animal. They were too big to be fertilized. I'm like, right, right. But then it happened. He's like, well, no, you you think it happened. And it was the, but I said, okay, well, why did they hold them the whole like winter? So I, I think we got some things that happen with snakes that don't follow the rules. They don't oh, follow yeah. the, the books and oh, the vets. Yeah. yeah. You know, but uh, I just, I'm, all that to say for new keepers coming in, if you, you have a smaller female and she produces for you, don't feed her for a few weeks after she produces. You don't want to trigger an already damaged animal with an additional breeding. I, I see that frequently. It's one of, those, one of those other little things that get to me all the time. Yeah. Yep. Uh, most of those neotropical big colubrids. I don't think Trimarkin does it. I could be wrong. I no. Uh, I don't. No, they do not. Yeah. But the uh, but everybody else does it. Um. And when I was right working on the book, uh, and I was actually like, diving into the journal articles and and all that jazz. Um. They would they would a lot of studies where they basically would take animals that were killed on roads or go into museums and they would dissect snakes from every month of the year. And they found with all of this, all of the species that we work with that are xenodontines, which are the barons, racers, muserranas, false water cobras. Um, they all had follicles in them. The, the girls did. Uh, there was usually a peak right at the beginning of spring. And then there was a peak like midsummer, which lines up perfectly with where, when you would expect that to happen. And it was basically the idea is that like they have so many predators down where they live that for the species to maintain itself, if they're having a boom year, they're, they need to put out a lot of young in case the next year is bad. The only problem is in human care, it's uh, always a boom year because we're delivering the freaking mice and the chicks to them literally on a plate sometimes. Um, yeah. So they're not dealing with droughts and you know fires and really deleter- really bad years. That doesn't happen. So they're gonna double clutch. All Which is the awesome damn when time. you can support them, but mm-hmm. it's also can be really scary to see what they'll do to themselves if you support them yes. incorrectly. Like yes. it, there, there's a level of support you need to to pull away from on some of the animals when they're, yeah. they're younger or smaller. Sometimes yeah. that's, that's something that unless an old man told me that I was an idiot for, for being the problem, I would never have even considered that. And I got the gray hair now. So let me be the old man saying, Hey, don't be the idiot. Yeah, you know? no, I, I was the idiot. The first time I bred, um, hogno snakes, uh, when, when I had one of the late, one of the girls dropped a huge clutch for one of that, like 20 eggs. It was massive. And she, she looked like all snakes look bad when they lay eggs. She looked horrific. Like, oh God, what did I do promoting this? Like she was just 
skin and ribs and deflated at the back end. And so I, of course, panicked and was giving her like a small mouse every four or five days. And then that's too much. I know that now. And she bounced back in like two weeks, but I had given her plenty of food and she had sperm stored. And then she produced another 20 egg clutch and she wasn't (laughs) able to come back from that. And I was, I didn't want another clutch. I just didn't want her to look like death. Um, Yeah. And now we're breeding hogs. And it's really funny that you bring that up because we just had our first female drop eggs and she looks like a stack of skin. And uh, I, I told the keep my keepers at the school, like, okay, she looks like absolute crap. She's getting a small mouse in a week. And they're like, what? I was like, yes, in a week. Um, and we're going to like maybe give her like a couple fuzzies for the next two weeks. Because if we feed her too much, she's going to double clutch and it's going to, it could potentially wipe her out. And so, yeah, yeah no. it's a hard lesson to learn. It's you, something you have to learn it by doing it. That's yeah. only, you know, so listen to us kids. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> anyway. All right. So when, when you do get your eggs, anything special with incubation? No. For them? I, it's a colubrid man. Throw it on a yep. shelf and come back. There you go. It, that, I mean, that's basically what we did, but I just wasn't. Yeah. Um, the low 80s at the absolute most and high 70s is even better. Um, my house is only – I only put it down to 78 degrees because I'm a Florida savage, so it's perfect <laughs> in my house. Gotcha. And I, 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 some people are like, your house is what? Yeah. <laughs> Turn the fan on. Like, what, I'm not going to have it <laughs> six. What, you have a 68 your house? Wait, what? So yeah, I, yeah, that's I my house. Right. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you, that's the, people say they're incubating their eggs in, in a, even when I lived up in Chicago though I just threw the eggs in a cage that had a heat light I never I never had an incubator for colubrid eggs I, so I'm always like really you guys you guys incubate colubrid eggs in an incubator mm-hmm. <laughs> or on top of the fridge like I, like yeah. I, I would, that that's what I use my temp gun for I go find 80 degrees somewhere in the house so that's where they go yeah Cool. So then, so when they when they hatch out, what's the setup for the babies, and then how do you get them to eat? Well, like I said, Pilatus are a dream for captivity. They they tend to just take off right away. I had a couple that hesitated last year, but I think, like I said, I'm doing the the um, button quail, so everything's getting button quail this year because I'm producing so many of them. They're just like such a dream feeder for me. Um. But for the average Joe setup, I I just do a, a real clean um, six quart tub. Uh, I get the from when I did Amazon tree boas. I learned the the little trick with the garden mesh. Cut a, a little square or rectangle just bigger than the width of your cage or width of your drawer, so you can put it in there like in an upside down U, and gives gotcha. them something to climb on. Paper towels and a water bowl. Once they're established and I know they're they're defecating and and eating well, then they they go to Aspen. And if I plan on keeping them, they go into a, a terrarium setup where I give them cool. branches. And again, I, I go Aspen cardboard hide box, but branches in a water bowl. They're they're pretty simple. I'm um, I'm sure there's people that are doing a far better job at them than I am. I, I, some people send me pictures of stuff. I'm like, damn. I really need to up my game. Like that's 
that's much better. We had the only clutch that I dealt with. The little boogers would not eat drop like we couldn't drop feed them, and we had them in in, in tubs. And then once we got them going, they they went to the eighteen eighteen exo cube. Uh, well, um, with them live live yes. crawlers, yeah, you can drop feed them live crawlers like nobody's business. That's they, what we they found don't, out. Yeah, mm-hmm. they were uh, they were just destroying anything alive. And anything that was dead, uh, we were able to get them transitioned by me holding them in my left hand, and then I had a fuzzy or something, and with a pair of forceps, and it, we did the exact same thing with the yellowtail crebos because they were in the you know, same year, but just yeah. kind of wobble, and then you get that pissy strike, and then they would kind of they would bite and then drop, and then. Do it again, bite, drop, do it again, bite, drop, and then they would inevitably You're, you're bite. getting it wrong. You're getting it wrong, man. It's, it's, yeah. it's bite, fling. Bite, yes, fling. that is correct. Bite, fling. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely correct. If, um, if, it, if it bites and drops, it's probably sick. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, How and did then you just, just throw that like, eight feet? Yeah, Come on, but, man. But, but like the previous four times, you flung it, and then on the fifth, they do that insane bite and it's gone. It's like yeah. not even you don't like it's bite choo 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 gone. Like that that's literally how long it would take them to down the freaking fuzzy. Uh, yeah, they're they're a little <laughs> a little sketchy with uh, because they're such a like high stress high metabolism animal. You really do need to get them feeding, and once you got them feeding, yeah, you can't too. miss you can't miss feeds. Mm-hmm. They they will drop quick if you miss feeds on them. Um, I had that where I lost a couple this past year where I just took a you know had a I don't know an event and some one weekend and something else the next weekend and you know it was two weeks without food that that shouldn't they had a you know a couple dozen meals before that it shouldn't have been a problem came back to like three of them dead I think and I'm like what the hell what happened here and it just the rest of them, I started feeding them again, and they were fine. But just like that—that that two week span was just a little too much for their, their just their their processing. And I really think I think just snakes in general, or colubrids in general. I won't, I won't go boas, pythons, venomous, but colubrids in general, I think are eating far more frequently than we ever give them credit for. Yeah, I think far more frequently, but they're they're just not getting the the high fat content items. I've caught plenty of corn snakes that regurgitate multiple lizards where they're out in a night and they'll eat three and four knolls in one night. And I think that's a, a you know, they, they go out every couple nights. And uh, you might know the guy, Zach. Um, he's somewhere in the Carolinas and he does a, a night vision videos with Cottonmouth. Oh, you know uh, that? well, I don't know if it's it, but there's a guy that does Cottonmouth acres and that's frederick boyce um that doesn't sound this guy's a okay. uh, uh he goes out with like a, a pedestal um resting thing no i don't mosquito. know what you're talking about but i want to <laughs> oh no it's oh you have to bro oh my god <laughs> he came are talk. my favorite north american snake <laughs> he did a talk for the chs and it was like mind-blowing to see he he did night vision camera goes out zero interaction with the animals just observes and watching a cottonmouth sit on a branch all night 
Like I could never do it. Like I would lose my freaking mind. <laughs> Eight hours in a swamp, not yep. moving, watching an animal also not move. And then a, a mouse comes down the Y of a branch. And instead of going on the upper part of the Y, it goes in the lower part of the Y. Then here's something he pointed out. And I've talked to other guys. And this is something else. Actually, another assignment for one of your poor children. We're, we're getting it. <laughs> the This thing's coiled up all night long. This, this mouse comes by, gets close to where he could scent it, but not close enough for a strike, and leaves. Whoa. This absolute savage of a man sits there for another hour and a half. <laughs> that snake, an hour and a half later, moves, goes forward, tongue flicks the trail the mouse was on, and then chin rubs his branch. Whoa. Leaves. Comes back the next night, goes to the same branch, tongue flicks his chin rub spot, chin rubs it again, coils up again. Then he has another video where these cottonmouths come out, and there's a specific branch. They come out, they chin rub it, and then set up at these little drainage from one section to another. Like this, this chin rub behavior is observed with all of these feeding opportunities and scenting opportunities. And then completely independent from him, we had a guy come in from Arizona who does hands-off of observation of rattlesnakes and starts talking about how rattlesnakes have a specific branch or rock at their den sites that is their their holy grail spot. And if that gets disturbed, they abandon their, de their den sites. But if you watch them, they'll come out and they'll chin rub that. And That's we see cool. it in captivity all the time. Completely yep. independent guys are talking about this. We see it, and they're like, oh, they're cleaning their face because we're human morons, and that's anthropomorphizing. <laughs> they don't – I mean, yes, they they are, in fact, cleaning their face with from Aspen and stuff for sure, but they're doing it all the time after feeds. When yep. there's nothing on their face, they're still doing it, and they're observing it. And, it's a, and then he's like, as far as we know, there's no scent glands in the chin. So what are they doing it? So then um, I think it was Francis um, – I, I don't. Somebody was talking about one of the um, uh, North African snakes. I think it was Francis, where they they emit something from the cloaca and, and shin rub it all over yeah. their whole body. That's the uh, lampropheids. The um, uh, the beak snakes do that. The Egyptian false corals do that. Sand snakes but, do that. But then they're also chin rubbing. Then there there's a definite scenting going on with them. That's yeah. pretty obvious. So I, I mentioned. I, I want to say it was Francis, but I, I can't remember. But it, it was somebody I talked to, and they're like, well, yeah, no, these guys do it all the time. That's obvious. That's how they, they, they scent. I'm like, but these other animals aren't doing the cloaca scent gland rub on their chin to do this that we're observing. And this guy's got hours. And I asked him, like, in your hours of footage, are you seeing this? But, it, again, that's, so that goes back to the whole how intelligent are these animals? Mm -hmm. How unintelligent are we that we see this all the time and we've never recognized it? And then guys are out there just doing the, the, the hardest thing in the world to not touching them and observing them and seeing this oh, yeah. behavior consistently over multiple animals. But the, 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 if I can, I'll look up the guy's name for you. It's got to still be on the CHS oh, no. page. Definitely but send me that. The, the ultimate coup de grace, that whole video he showed us, the whole, everything was fascinating. But the ultimate was a cottonmouth is sitting on the side of a, of a stream with running water hits a mouse, they both tumble into the water, and then the cottonmouth writes itself, hits a branch in the water, does the chin rub, and then does uh, circles that are swimming upstream 
it's going less mm-hmm. than it is going downstream. He goes, I really wish I knew somebody that knew the right mathematics to figure out is, if he is, is, is this cotton mouse swimming the same amount yeah. up and down, even though the circles aren't the same size. Like, is, is his stroke work giving him the idea that he's gone five feet, and when he goes downstream, he's going 10 feet, but he's trying to also do just a five-foot circle. And then yeah. the next one was like 10 foot, 20 foot. And the next one was like 15 feet and 30 feet. And then it, it found its prey and then went up and ate it. But it, it was every time it, it completed a search, it went back to the branch, chin rubbed again. Tongue flick, chin rub. So there's something yeah. going on there, and somebody needs to figure this out for sure to let us know what we're missing. But... I'll find you that guy's name. That, 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 this yeah. is the stuff I love about reptiles is like, we're always learning stuff and there's, there's so much to learn just by observing, which is why I don't like having animals in racks. You can sit there and watch your animals and see them do behaviors all the time. And it's like, well, wait a second. What is that? What is oh, that no. little thing? I know the, the head rubbing. I've been paying attention to that. Um, with, with, uh, the king snakes actually, because I have, um, one of the nice things about my job is that I'm able to have enclosures in my office. So I have snakes in my office. I've got snakes in my house. I've got snakes in my garage. They're all in vivariums. So I'm, if, if it's a day in Wheeling, West Virginia, I'm going to be looking at snakes for a significant part of it. <laughs> and I've noticed absolutely unequivocally exactly what you're talking about. Uh, my guys have a tendency to do it around their hide boxes like the entrance to the hide box, I see them doing that exact behavior where it looks like they're scratching their face. Uh, yeah, but I know that elapids do that in us. I think it. I feel like Rick Shine talked about elapids doing that in Australia. I could be wrong. Um, well, I think but everything's is, doing it. We're just not recognizing yeah. it or seeing it. We're not. We're not observing without touching, which yeah, is no. one of those other fascinating. Like that's that's what it's. It, it, everybody should. Facebook's killing herb societies, and that's such a horrific thing because it, I learned so much going to the CHS herb society meetings, Chicago Herbological Society, and these yeah. speakers that come in. And uh, it's, that's one of the things I, besides the food of Chicago, that's amazing. <laughs> Florida food is yeah. terrible. But <laughs> the, the, the herb society and the meetings and the interaction with these people that come in and, and have these amazing things they're doing. We just don't see enough of that. And even the, the journals are kind of dying and the oh, reptiles yeah. and the, uh. Oh, reptiles magazine put out an issue in the past yeah, two months <laughs> where like, I don't remember exactly what it was. It was a turtle, but it was on the cover and it was the wrong damn turtle. Like on the yeah. cover, like what the hell? Really? So, uh-huh. Yeah. I oh, saw yeah. you post about that. Uh-huh. Anywho. Yeah. Poor Russ is rolling over. Yeah, I know. Russ was dying. <laughs> anyway, um, well, then I think we basically covered everything. Is there any final thoughts you would have on Spilotes Pilatus that you'd want people to know? Um, Cautionary tale, anything of that nature? Getting back to the, um, well, captive born, if you can find it, is infinitely better with this species in particular. They are not a – they do remarkably well. Um, sulfurous do much worse. Yeah. Uh, sulfurous, for whatever reason, when they – cut, both of them being big, long, skinny 
colubrids do not have a lot of natural body fat to absorb all the damage that happens in the importation process, the dehydration and everything else that happens. I mean, there's a reason we got boas from South America so frequently and so little of everything else. Everything else doesn't have that fat content to handle the stress. And then um, frequently people want to try to treat them right away when they come in. So if you get wild caught, um, get one, have a good herp vet long before you buy the animal. Um, and that's uh, U.S. Arc's been putting it out. Um, I don't people actually pay attention to it, but arev dot uh, org is such a great resource. Just drop in your uh, your zip code and find every all, all that's going to do for you is it's going to find you the vets who are members of the uh, Association of Reptile and Amphibian Vets. And that means they paid their dues and they've taken continuing education classes in that realm. So it's at least get you a foothold. If people say, I have no vets in my area. Did you look like, look at it first, but yep. get, get you a good vet first and then don't treat the animal for at least six months when it comes in. Cause you need it to rehydrate. And that's not just drinking. That's breathing good, humid, humid caging. It, it's rehydration is a process for them. It takes months. Um, or skip all that and just get captive born. There you go. That's a better option. I, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, people are going to do what they're going to do. People still buy golden tegus and then get surprised that they're not black and whites. I mean, right. Pe- people are what they are. Um, but if you, if it also, it, uh, in fairness, there's not a lot of captive born tiger rats. They yeah. just simply aren't. Um, so if you can't find them, that's the route you're going to go. Just be very careful with them. Um, and also try to pay attention to locality with these because eventually I'm going to talk Zach into dropping that 50k and, and doing a species, <laughs> and we're going to find go. out that you, you're deal, you're you're crossing species. And oh, I'm, I'm that, certain you would be crossing species if you did yeah. South America and Central America or something like that. There's just no way. Yeah, no, for sure. And there, a lot of people do get, and then people are like, well, how do you, how do you tell them between uh, the Costa Rican and the South American? Well, not a lot's come out of Costa Rica. If if you have to know you got Costa Rica, if someone's telling you, ah, oh, this came from Costa Rica, maybe. If they're selling it cheap, probably not. Um, but Costa Rican animals can look superficially similar. Um, some people are saying that the South American species have a longer scale than Costa Rican, but I think that's a subjective uh, take on it. I don't think if you if you want it to be Costa Rican and you're looking for scale length, you're gonna you're gonna find out it's Costa Rican in your mind. So I don't think that's a yep. good way to do it. I'd, I'd go with captive born stuff on that as well, if you can. Um, but just try to keep them within their their range. And I mean, I'm saying that while I'm breeding Mexican and Honduran, but by <laughs> by species, by specimen records, I I didn't do that haphazardly. Um, yeah. I did that because I spoke with uh, John Anderman, who sat there and, and did the scale counts on the animals in the specimen jars in San Diego. And, and I want, trust me, please, God, I want pure Tomalimpus animals because they're amazing. Um, but uh, Gavin Brink, who is another huge reason I'm into these things, uh, he had crossed them already. That's where my 50-50s had come from. Uh, and I just, the fact that that male is the one solid perfect prolific breeder i have kind of made it everybody else happens to have that that mixed 
locality blood, but they should be the same species when the genetics get done. Cool. So, so are, you want to ask the final question, Clint? Well, I'm going to ask one question before you hit the final question. All right. I can't wait like, to ask. Okay, no problem. So, okay. Great. For those who have never met Jason, yes, Jason's got like a seven foot wingspan. <laughs> yes, he does. So, my question is, you know, you keep all these large colubrids. You know, what would you tell a, a common person with normal length arms? You know. <laughs> What what kind of tips would you say if they were going to put together a collection along the lines of what you have? Meaning, what are some of the nuances and things to to think about, to look out for, to prepare for that kind of thing when with dealing with large, fast moving animals like this? The the longest tongs you can safely use for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I use thirty inch tongs on everything. Um, I, which is ironic because when I was, quote unquote, doing my hours for Venomous down here, I would frequently not use tongs or use <laughs> eight inch tongs because, again, I was a 20 year old testosterone filled moron. But <laughs> now I use 30 inch tongs for everything. I still get bit all the time. But um, yeah, 30 inch or 36 inch tongs are a huge help because, especially if you have them singularly set up, uh, tapping the tiger's. So um, we, we, I didn't really touch on it, but when you go to feed tigers, um, if you tap on them like mid-body and, and keep tapping them going towards their tail away from their head, they'll spin around and grab the food. Wild-caught, captive-born, that, that, that's just their reaction, going towards the tail. You go towards the head, they'll freak out and run away from you. Um, and they, their diet does vary uh between rodents and birds, and I don't feed frogs, but I have frog legs. I try not to. I try not to do frogs if I don't have to. I do them with the the dry marcons. I, they, I think you were talking about that, Zach. Actually, you got me to go buy another box of them with your stuff. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I listen to all your episodes. Ruining me more and more. Um, <laughs> cool. But uh, yeah, just the the big tongs I think are just a, such an important thing for all our animals, actually. That's one of the things I use. I use the long tongs. I use, I get so many little tricks for different species because I have the tool available and they're yep. not expensive. It's 20 bucks. Like there's so much available now in modern herpticulture that I don't think a lot of people use all those tools. Um, like I, I don't, my building does not have Wi-Fi, So I went out and got the intermatic, uh, I can't think of the name of it. I can get you the the part number. You guys are in. You guys probably have a modern house with <laughs> with Wi Fi. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but with smart plugs. But you can you the one I have. It, it follows the sunrise sunset that you you set it to. But you also get to set your date and your time, so you can manipulate that as you see fit. You you can change it to. You you can follow sunrise sunset for whatever location you choose up and down the coastline. So if you want the sunrise sunset for the Carolinas, but you're in Florida, you can have it. If you want Florida's and you're in, you know, vice versa, you you can set it up that way. Um, and it does it changes daily automatically for you. So that's like one of the, like I when I moved my first year, I, I moved to this place. I I don't know why or how I possibly forgot that I had timers and everything. 
Like I moved and I forgot that I, I wasn't flipping switches. And I moved in for like nine months. <laughs> I'm out there flipping all my power switches <laughs> on daily. Like it was a normal thing. And I'm like, I had a terrible year because I, some days they would get six hours of sun or light during the, the, the winter. And some days they'd get 14 hours or 16 hours because I had a terrible work day. And mm-hmm. like, I, I'm like, I couldn't figure it out. And my, my buddy Scott's here and we're talking about it. And I'm like, my mm, timers, man. What the hell? Where are my timers? And I just I went in my other building and I found a whole box of timers. I'm like, why? What? Did, how did I not know this? Like, what? But but That's in the funny. in the midst of looking for the timers, yeah, no, it, it was like the, uh, it, I, I, this is a couple of years ago and it still just kills me. Like it's so aggravated. But in the midst of looking for my timers, I started searching for these. And I end up finding these other timers instead that are just amazing because. I don't have to do anything. And, and I have a couple of them that are set up to my time and I'll walk out there in the morning and sh- it, it's dead nuts on every time I walk out there right at sunset when I get ready for work or sunrise rather when I get ready for work mm-hmm. and I walk in the lights kick on right as I walk in the door. It's like perfect. So, d- d- so use the tools available to you and, and you don't have to spend a ton of money. And the other thing I'm hearing about now, I'm sure you're using the crap out of these is the, the little data loggers. Yeah. Everybody's using those. I need to implement them. Yeah. I love the movies. I need to start using those and trying to figure out what my animals are doing. I'm I'm not having good luck. I'm I'm doing something wrong, but uh, I might, I might be controlling too much. My, my something wrong might be that, um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ron St. Pierre just was like doing his guru crap. He does to me every once in a while. (laughs) He's like, you have too much control. Your building's too good. Like, I got to insulate it. I got the AC. I got all this control. And he's like, yeah, that's a problem. Chaos. <laughs> Chaos is needed. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, but yeah, it's if you don't, I, I got I'm, I'm working too much to track it personally. But I, if I think I'm going to grab the gobies and just see what my actual temps are in the enclosures to try to figure out am i too hot am i too cold am i too stable what 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 is my issue but it, again it's just all the tools you got there's so many tools available nowadays it, it, it's incredible what we have and we and i don't think people use them fully yep no the, the govies are great i it i mean they're bluetooth so i i i just use them mainly when i'm trying to cool things down in the winter because we have the winter up here and it got down to like zero for a week in the corner of my garage where everything goes yeah i i when, when i walk into the garage and it's cold it's like oh shit is everybody dead and then check the goby nope we're at 40 you know six which is pretty cold but not that no one's going to be in any danger if they're brewmating and then i just pepper the entire corner it's ridiculous it's totally i think i had 12 gobies <laughs> set up okay don't go a, that far into tools yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. There's happy mediums. Massively <laughs> nerding out. Um, and it's in like a four-foot-wide spot. <laughs> I just had like up by the ceiling and then down every like three feet to the ground. But, um, yeah, no. Well, I, I mean, I, I love it. With, with the pythons, I went and I temp gun where my blackheads were laying eggs one year. And uh, going back to Gavin Brink, Gavin was just the uh, – uh, we unfortunately lost them. But, you know, Gavin mm-hmm. went by Mace, Montana on Facebook yeah. and, and totally mind screwed people constantly <laughs> to where people would, he was, 
<laughs> people would he would say something as Gavin, and people would reference Mace and tag Mace <laughs> into the conversation. And Gavin's crazy God. ass would argue with himself on a topic. <laughs> and he'd, he'd tag me and be like, hey, man. Or he'd message me and be like, hey, man, this guy's an idiot. He's, he just. But, anyways, one of the things he. Years ago, when I did the Pythons, and we, we were getting. He was good friends with uh, George, who put out the Herb stats. And he was like, man, get your Herb stat, set it up in your incubator, you know, set it to 87.7 degrees. And then what you need, it has a night drop. So do a night drop, though. you know, not a big night drop, but your temperature, you figure it's going to drop probably, you know, probably a degree and a half. But pr- let, let's go 1.7 degrees down. I'm like, done. I'll do it. Like, I'll give it a go the first time. I didn't, I didn't, wasn't really, I didn't have, know what to do with the blackheads. I think it was carpus, whatever. He, he suggested it. I'm like, it made sense to me the way he, he ran it through his head. He was a brilliant, brilliant guy. I did it. And what I noticed was the the humidity would raise in my incubator when it dropped to 86. And then when the heat kicked on in the morning and jumped back up to 87 quickly, it was only a degree and a half, but that was just enough to kind of stir the humidity. So going back to Govies, like people are doing maternal incubation or seeing their turtles build nests or tegus or whatever we should be sticking these gobies in where they're doing these nests. Like you can pull your eggs if you want, but throw the gobies in and let's see, are are we really, are we doing what we should be doing with these eggs? Cause when I, so sorry, but I I skipped out my own point. When I tapped gun my eggs where the female was laying it turns out 87.7. I go back there at night when she, cause she, even though I pulled the eggs, she's coiled up on them. Uh I went back in and this was years later, by the way, I go in there with the temp gun, lift her up, temp gun underneath her. 86 degrees like he just nailed it as half tongue-in-cheek half half serious (laughs) and nailed it exactly what this animal was doing in my enclosure where she chose to put the eggs and where she chose to try to incubate the eggs i stole from her so like there we have these tools now that you can see exactly what they're doing and maybe we can refine things because now we have the 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 herp stats are amazing. You can you can make those temperature gradients as you want them. Yep. You can. Oh no, the ramping. Everything's available. Crazy. Yeah. The, All right. We're we're in such a world, man. Oh well, let's end with the, talking about that world, and and we ask everybody this, and I I cannot wait to hear your answer. <laughs> <laughs> you think you think he's going to have an opinion on this? <laughs> he may have an opinion on it. So obviously the world of herpetoculture that we find ourselves in has changed um, and some, and, and it is currently changing and it is an insanely different landscape than it was in the late nineties, uh, early two thousands. And I just always use that as my reference point. Cause that's when I was in it before I left it and came back. But where do you see herpetoculture going in the private sector at least? Uh, and plus, you live in Florida, and you know nothing's happening down there. Like it's, yeah. it's just all calm and cool and collected down there right now. Um, yeah, un- unfortunately, we got a guy that thinks that he should attack us on his bid for president. And that's uh-huh. that's terrible. Um, there, there's guys who know guys in the F, uh, FWC down here who are just like, dude, we don't want to do this stuff. This is coming down from on high from their commissioners. The commissioners. So the, one of the crazy things about Florida is the commissioners are all appointed by the governor for the FWC, and all the commissioners donate money to the election campaign. And it's not just FWC. It's every single commission down here 
that that governs anything. The people that are appointed to those positions are all the donors. I mean, it's not like it's a big secret, but it's whatever. So, yeah, we're kind of screwed down here until whatever this election cycle does. Um, Hopefully we can get rid of Rubio at some point if people can just, you know, enough Harpers can get together and be like, hey, let's not vote for this moron. So he quits putting all these federal bans on us. Mm -hmm. Laws notwithstanding, we're in uh, still, I think, in an amazing area where we, we have so much room for growth and improvement with the animals. I think we're we're in a great state at this point. Um, again, with the ball pythons bringing huge money in, they brought all these other tools for us in. We, we have a, an amazing area to be in. Um, we just need people working on some of the obscure stuff, whether it's, colubrids or geckos or whatever else so before we lose them to a lot of these populations are just disappearing unfortunately mm-hmm. and we are a part of that we, we can't pretend we're not um, I think I don't I don't know if it was you Zach or another podcast talking about this but one thing I would love to see people do at, in the hobby as a general thing and something that actually Gavin go back to Gavin again he always did uh, when he made a sale he would yeah. tack on a he, he would straight up tell you I'm tacking on twenty five dollars for US Arc or part of part of this sale twenty five dollars is going to US Arc twenty five dollars is going to a conservation thing and when I was in the the uh, CHS I would I would I ran a couple things at, we we had a big event whatever um, conservation I would say to people I, I'm donating around a thousand dollars or not I am CHS I was just the, the spearhead on that. CH was donating $1,000 to four conservation groups. Please yep. let me know what you have for conservation groups. And bless our community, I would get U.S. ARC. I love U.S. ARC. I support the hell out of U.S. ARC. I think Phil's doing an amazing job. I think U.S. ARC Florida is doing a good job. But U.S. ARC is not a conservation group. Mm-hmm. People in this hobby cannot identify conservation groups. That's a problem. We should be donating yes. to conservation groups. 100%. That, that's Ugh. where the, the Ducks Unlimited comes in. That's what mm-hmm. it was. You were talking about this on somebody else's podcast. That's where yeah. it was. Uh, yep. Yeah, Ducks Unlimited does their thing. That's a bunch of hunters. But they're donating and, and they're buying the wetlands. They're doing it. We, we have a ton of money in this hobby. And the big guys are donating their money already and they're doing their thing. The little guys seem to come out and do it and, and get their voice out there. Like I'm, I have no issue donating to WC biologists with all of the. I mean, I'm probably gonna get like 30 people telling me they're never gonna talk to me again and just unfriend <laughs> me on Facebook for suggesting such a horrible idea. The biologists are out there doing their job. Yep. <laughs> so I mean, they're they're trying to protect our wildlife, and guess what? A bunch of those biologists, you see them at Daytona. They're behind tables. They're selling you animals that are amazing that they bred themselves. They happen to have a job where they work as scientists for the, for the government. The government's doing what the government does. That's not the biologist. Are some of those biologists having to say, Hey, this sector has some idiots in it. And some of those people that are idiots have too much money and not enough sense. And they're doing a lot of damage to the environment through their carelessness, which people know exactly who I'm talking about on certain (laughs) things on that one. Um, Mm -hmm. I just don't want to get sued, so I'm not going to say a name. But, um, yeah, the, yes, the government had to step in on some people down here. 
but a lot of this stuff is our own fault. A lot of us, a lot of the things that are from down here are because we do support people who need to not be supported, but with money or with popularity, with the fact that they bring in a bunch of animals, we still support them. If we can, if we can clean up ourselves, which we, everybody says no one does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if we can clean up ourselves and not support the guys just because they happen to be the current ones that are flipping the stuff that the other company that no one wants to buy from is bringing in, so you're still buying from them. There, there's a handful of, of really bad seeds that are, maybe aren't bad individuals, but their overall mentality is just so detrimental to the, to the hobby. We should not be supporting them, but people people do. Yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there, there are plenty. Uh, this is done all the time in conservation. Ducks Unlimited. I'm glad you brought that up. They are the they. I mean, when when you teach conservation biology, which I do, that is like the classic example where hunters are oftentimes viewed as like, how the hell do they like animals? They blow them away with guns. All righty, but th- th- there's so much more to it than just that. Uh, oh. And they needed it's a resource, and for them to build their resource, they needed wetlands, and so then they start literally figuring out ways and lobbying and getting money to build wetlands. And now, however many decades later, it's it's a well known fact that the wetlands we have in the United States and, and parts of our country they exist because of hunters. Like mm-hmm. that is the reason we have those wetlands out in the Great Plains and things like that. And they weren't ditched and drained and turned into more agricultural settings. And I just always think about herpetoculture and I'm like, we're the people that love the damn snakes. So yeah, maybe I mean, we put money towards the snakes outside yeah. of our snakes. And then it makes it really hard for conservation for people, for, for those commissioners and things like that to be like, well, they're all bad. Cause then you can well, be like, well, look at this. And it's just, it shuts down the argument. Chicago, Chicago is a um, amazing example. The Chicago Herb Society, something I was never actually involved in personally. We, we ran Reptile Fest, which would get 6,000 people through the door and five, 6,000 people. And it was a completely educational event. No animals were, were for sale. We just educated the public, which were mostly families. Cool. Cool story. There's 12 million people there. 6,000 people don't matter. What did matter is a handful of our members would dedicate their weekends. Chicago's got this thing called an alderman, which is basically the mayor of a town or the, the, the an area of the city of Chicago, a neighborhood. And each of those neighborhoods have an alderman. And they're truly just their own little city. And that's truly basically the mayor. But the alderman would throw a street party. And a couple of our people would show up to all of those alderman parties. And they would have reptiles on exhibit. Chicago has a ban on African clawed frogs because they're in the waterways. That goes back to, I think, like the 60s. There's a ban on crocodilians. And the state the state has other bans that they brought in. Chicago has no other bans. I, I, I think venomous are also banned there. But they're, they're, there's a reason. It's because there was a good political connection between the CHS doing a very minor detail, just showing up and educating and showing these individuals these animals aren't scary. There's pictures of aldermen with reptiles in hand going back 30-plus years, 40 years, because of of the individuals in the CHS who did the groundwork, the footwork. We need to do more of that and more of the reptile fest ideas where we 
we come together, volunteer our weekends. You don't make a dollar. You go out and you, you bust your ass. You, you ruin your back. You destroy <laughs> your feet. You don't make money, but you educate. And you put out – if we could do it in Chicago, I get it's a, it's a giant thing. That same format can be used elsewhere. And that, yeah. that was the CHS's great secret. We would we would raise forty to fifty thousand dollars that weekend and we flip around and put it into grants committees and and funding conservation projects and, and running the society for the next couple of years. We did that year after year. We got to the point where we had too much money. We were a not for profit and we were exceeding our money limits. We had to just <laughs> donate bigger amounts of money. Yeah. Our grants went from five hundred to a thousand to a couple people got two thousand, people got five. We had to get rid of money. Because our event was so popular, but it, we were doing that while be, having a political grab and everything else. So there is a formula for this, but it takes the community coming together. And I, 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 I joked about it down here. I'm like, I would try to do it down here, but I know too many people down here and too many people down here don't like too many other people down here. Yeah. And my, myself included. Yeah. I'm an incredibly opinionated asshole. I understand <laughs> that. But I generally... I feel I'm, I'm in the right when I have an issue with somebody. If, the, if, I, if I go against somebody, I, I said this the other day, the, the, I haven't screwed anybody in this hobby in over 20 years except myself. I, do, I screw myself all the time with how I rip myself off paying people their shipping and stuff. Like I'm selling these quail. I'm losing money on that. But I'm trying to do right by my people that I deal with as customers. Um, but there's people I, I, that once they rip me off, I'll, I'll never deal with them again. And that, that kind of blocks me from doing it. But somebody who's a little bit less of a grudge holder than myself can run with mm. an idea where they put together projects where we get people volunteering to go do a Daytona size event for education. Yeah. Make it a fundraiser, great. flip that money into conservation. And now we're, 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 we're handling all sorts of stuff. And here's the crazy part of it. Anybody wants to run with this idea. If you're doing it, if you're a not for profit and you're donating money Every, every news station will have you in there and run a free advertisement for you, run a free segment because they love to have newscasters with reptiles in hand. They won't yep. do it if you're, if you're profiting, but if you're a not-for-profit, free advertising. That I mean, we were on every news station in, in Chicago. We were on different radio stations. It was such an easy reach out, but people don't realize that's an avenue you can run. So please, somebody else run that somewhere in the country, multiple places in the country. That's what we need in this hobby is, is to get back to that because we all got in doing that. I think every you probably all both of us or three of us rather probably did the, the Boy Scout outreach things and things like that. Oh, right? God, yeah. Yeah. And then like yeah. you're a bad example, Zach, because you're still teaching. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I kind of do that a lot <laughs> outside your store. Do you, have you done any real outreach? I mean, you're, you're kind of in like this long time like I have, like I've been. Yeah, it's – we – a lot of things have changed here in um, the Evansville area. We used to do something very, very similar to what you were – well, along the same lines, what you were mentioning earlier, where we have a local nature preserve. And once a year, um, uh, several of the local breeders, uh, we it – was, it was reptile invasion is what was called out there, and we would – uh, all go out. There was no selling allowed whatsoever. The most you could do is hand a business card. Uh, but we would bring animals, and it was the largest fundraiser for the nature preserve every single year, just one weekend. 
Uh, there was always a large albino Burmese that was brought, and you know, you're, you're paying five dollars a pop to take a picture with it. Um, and it was we had a blast. I loved doing that because it took the the pressure of a sale out, you know, and it was just a, a day of you're hanging out with your friends because we all knew each other, and you're just talking about reptiles all day long, you know, yeah. and you're laughing, you're cutting up and knowing how much money you were bringing in for the nature preserve. Um, so that's one. And then there's, we have our local herb society that used to be active. Um, when the reptile invasion ended, it ended because the curator, um, that curator left, another one came in and they didn't see the value in it. Well, after about two or three years of it being down, they realized they got a new curator and uh, that one instantly wanted to get back in. So the Herb Society, we jumped on it uh, and, and brought that back too. But over the past, I would say probably three years, that really has gone to the wayside. I think that a lot of the individuals involved with it have become busy. You know, life gets in the way of life sometimes. Um, and so... For me, personally, you know, what, what have I done? The only thing that I would say that we do and we do regularly, other than simply uh, attempting to educate anybody that comes in to, uh, into the shop, we have gone now and done presentations to, gosh, I think we're up to around 12 or 13. And that's only, we would have done more, but I limit it to one a week. Uh, 12 or 13 presentations in local schools and it's ranged everywhere from preschool to, I now have a, a set every eight week rotation at our local community college, uh, doing large presentations to their, uh, bioscience class. And, you know, my whole thought process is just, it's the one that we all have. The more that people are around these animals and experience these animals, the more, the less likely they are to kill them. You know, yep. when they see him in the yard, it's that thought. It's the, oh, well, it's not as bad as I thought. I may not like it. I may not want to go pick it up, um, but they'll leave it alone kind of thing. Yep. And so it's bit by bit. And it's, does it, does that work for me as a shop? Absolutely. Because every time I go, obviously I'm passing out materials and inevitably at least one customer comes from that visit. And the thing that's crazy, the, the part that I, I really enjoy, and we don't charge for this um, yet. <laughs> and when I say yet, it's not a money-making thing. I've actually, I've been tossing the idea around over the past month. I was waiting for the school year to be over, and we're there now, um, because I think that next year what I'm going to offer is a, um, a $50 fee, 25 of that being donated uh, to USR. Uh, and 25 of that going into a, a pot for us to utilize for, like you said, some type of conservation piece. Don't really know what I want to do with that other half. But in the event that a school or a daycare is unable to pay that $50 fee, we'll still come do it. We'll do it yeah. anyway. Um, and But, you know, it's just that way we can help spread a little bit further than just the, the class that's in front of us. Um, but the thing that's so neat about it is I'm getting called and emailed at least once every two or three days by another school, by another organization that has heard about it, 
that has seen it posted on Facebook from one of their friends. Hey, we've seen that you guys do presentations. Can you please come here and do one for us? Um, and it's, I mean, it's exciting. So it's not a grand scale thing yet. You know, it's, we're still so damn busy with, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're not even a year in yet, right? August is our, is our one year anniversary. Um, so there's still so much going on, so much to do. So at the moment, it's that little thing. It's that couple hours out of a week to try to make a difference more locally. And hopefully that can end up spreading to something a little bigger. That's kind of where we're at oh. right now with it. As long as it's done right, it, it can be huge. It, you know, if you don't know what impacts you're making and who's in front of you or whose kids there or whatever else. You know, a funny side story. And, you know, I, um, I'll just kind of throw this. Uh, so we, I, uh, my wife was actually doing a presentation cause I was under the weather and she went to one of our local schools and, uh, she said that uh, the teacher brought up a student and introduced the student, and uh, the student's last name was Bryant. And uh, she says, you know, and just says his uh, his parents are Kevin and, and Kelly Bryant. And I don't know if that rings a, a bell with you guys, but it and it didn't ring one with my wife, but I know exactly who they are. And um, so my wife just kind of stood there looking at her like, okay. She says, well, <laughs> they they own Rodent Pro. Oh. And uh, she said, yeah, and uh, she says, and Braxton, you know, wants to give you something and, you know, handed over a, uh, a gift certificate from Roden Pro where they had heard we were coming to do this presentation and wanted to help us out with our huge feeding bill every month. You know, <laughs> out here. Um, so I just thought that was awesome. You know, I reached out to Kevin and thanked him because it was you know, just such a, a great unexpected uh, gesture and uh I thought that was neat. So it's it's just cool when you when you put when you put the good energy out there, it comes back. Yep. You know, it comes back. It, it, it may not be that day, it may not be that week, but you put enough of it out there, it's going to spin around. That's just the way it works. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's what we need to do more of is get the damn, not the damn, get the good energy out there, and then start kind of pushing down this the negative energy that seems to what we talk about far too often because it's ever present but yeah you can't, you can't break the people that that's one thing with at reptile fest i'm sure it, you, you guys see the same thing it was always so funny people would come through and you, a, a couple would come through and it'd be this like big tattooed mean looking you know whatever what the, the manliest man you can picture in your brain and he would macholy tell you he's not touching that damn snake and then the mother would step forward terrified, but because she wants her child to to not be afraid and to have that education, she would touch the animal. And I always thought it was so amazing that that the women, you know, oh, women yeah. always infinitely better than the men and all things like that, just would put themselves in a position that they're completely uncomfortable and the, the macho-ness of the, of the man wouldn't let them do that. And I was just like, well, it's kind of weird – you know, sociological things you're watching happen, but it, it you're not going to change some people is, is I guess my point, but other people for their children will frequently open their mind. And that's kind of our, our way in is doing those outreach for the kids mm-hmm. to kind of break some of the parents. It, Cause we would, we would have mothers pretend to touch snakes 
like fake pet them just to get their kid to, to pet them. <laughs> yep. just like, eh, yeah, lie to him if you want to, that's fine, but at least you're trying. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Well, very, very cool. Well, this has been absolutely epic and wonderful. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. This was a fun one. This was yeah. a fun one. You're going to ta- change the title to Tangent Rat Snakes. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize. Well, that's, that's, other shit. that's all good. <laughs> We're definitely going to have you back, man, because I think that the world needs a um, a Freenax episode for Shizzle. Uh, but we, we started with the most common member of the group. Uh, so there we go. But if, if people want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? They're not mad at me for terrible suggestions like funding biologists. Um, just Jason Hood on on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Snakes Unlimited underscore Jason Hood. Um, I supposedly have a web page that I haven't done anything with, and it's terribly outdated. But I may have said something smart ten years ago on there, so you can check out SnakesUnlimited.com if you can find it. I, I can't find it. So half the time I go to search it, it's not there. Then I, I search it again. Like when they want money from me, I look and it pops uh, back up. I'm like, huh, okay. <laughs> there we go. And, and where can people find you, Clint? Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Clint Bartley, Instagram, Metazotics LLC, uh, as well as on uh, Metazotics on Facebook, sorry, and Metazotics.com. Boom. So you want to find me, Dr. Crada, at Instagram, Zach Lofen on Facebook, and then look me up online. Uh, the ever-present shameful plug for grad students. Um, I might have a little announcement in a couple episodes, so I, I'll leave that teaser out there. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be a really long time before Clint and I record again. Uh, less than 24 <laughs> hours. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, we're banking these episodes now because I don't know what the hell my summer's going to look like once uh, the field season really hits. And, you know, Clint's just buying up 100-plus snake reptile collections here, there, and everywhere. So <laughs> I'm putting the brakes on that for a bit. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And we also want to, as always, thank um, Marilia Python uh, Radio Network. Uh, Eric, of course, the pod father, one and only, is the reason we exist um, there's another network that always refers to their leader as the goat. And I'm going to challenge them right now and cause a tiny bit of drama because Eric's literally been doing this longer than anyone. So I would claim that he may be the goat. Uh, but anywho, uh, with that being said, doesn't matter what time of day you're listening to this, whatever time of day it is, hope it's a good one. And with that, this has been Colubrid in Colubroid radio. Thank you, Jason. And, uh, yeah, we are out. Out.